Welcome to the Anything Goes Podcast, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney. Now, this program has always been a lighthearted review show of geeky properties, where we've tackled things like Star Wars, Harry Potter, and even Batman, stories that are near and dear to me, and I've talked about them with no problems. However, there are tales that become benchmarks for a generation, that go on and define the creators along with the audience that experienced it. I've never been nervous to be able to talk about movies on the show before, but on July 18, 2008, no ordinary movie was released. This is the Christopher Nolan retrospective, and the movie we're talking about is The Dark Knight. Now, I can't do it without any guests, and I know there's only two guests I wanted to have on the show. Now, gentlemen, who are you? I am Justin Serlo, back yet again for another Christopher Nolan movie, and it's a good one we have picked out, Tim. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, who's your who's your buddy there? Oh, I, w- I was hoping that you'd skip over me like we skipped over Justin well, last time. Well, I felt bad about that. When I was editing it, I was like, holy shit, I got to make an edit for that. And I was like, ah. Uh... Like, and here's Chris. Fuck you, Justin. Let's start the show. And then Justin's the first one to speak. And I'm like, crap, I got to well, rectify that, this. That Chris really got a sore throat in between that and the intro. <laughs> Just like, re- I felt really bad about that. And I'm like, okay. Make sure to have both guests uh, introduce themselves from that next episode and from then on. So, like the title says, we're talking about the Dark Knights. So let's jump into that right now. Before we actually jump into the movie review itself, when did you guys first hear about the teasers of it, and when did you guys actually first see it? I think I heard about the teaser for it probably about six months or so before it came out. It was sometime over the winter, Mm -hmm. um, I guess 2007 into 2008. I heard that they had started production on it but i don't remember following it too closely it was sort of just like oh well this movie comes out next summer i'll go see that but i wasn't keeping tabs on it and then not like how we do with other dc properties we do today right yeah this was before i had gone full geek i guess <laughs> you never go full never like, go full geek ever, guys have, like You've been this Indiana Jones and Star Wars fan for a long time. Like, when do you when do you cross the threshold of becoming full geek? When you start like checking websites to see, you know, what production material did they oh, go through today? Oh, those websites. I thought yeah. you were talking about other websites. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Yes, I know I am. Thank you. At least in my own head. Now, Chris. I mean, new God. <laughs> thank you, Ingvay Malmsteen YouTube videos. <laughs> Uh, pretty similar to Justin, I wasn't really kind of following the day-to-day, behind-the-scenes, all the updates like we do now. I think that really started with The Dark Knight Rises, and I guess we'll talk more about that when we get to that movie, because that was really kind of the, I feel like for a lot of people, the birth of kind of 
keeping up with everything on a day-to-day, listening to podcasts, you know, listening to previews, reviews, all that type of stuff. But for this movie, it was more like, oh, new Batman movie? Oh, yeah. It's a sequel to that other one. Oh, yeah. All right. Want to go see it? And then went to see, you know, I went to see my friend Steve. And I, I saw this one in theaters. I made sure I saw this one in theaters because, I mean, I just, after watching Batman Begins, uh, you know, on TV months later, I felt so stupid that I hadn't been there to see it in theaters. So I made sure that I saw this one. I don't think I saw it opening weekend or anything like that, probably mm-hmm. like the week after or something like that. It was very, you know, very casual. But uh, after this, it was kind of like it ramped up everything to where by the time the next movie came out, I had been, you know, well aware of everything that was going on and kind of taking that first leap into full geek, as Justin put it. Never go full geek. Oh, always go full geek. Always go full geek. <laughs> always go full geek. But but yeah, so this was this was kind of the last um the last stand of me being kind of out of the loop of things. Right. Cuz everything after this I've I've been kind of right there for. And I'm kind of like very similar between you two when I first heard about this. I remember the very first teaser that came out of Comic-Con, the July, the year, like a year before the movie came out, where it was just audio clips of the movie played out over an image of the Dark Knight symbol being blown up. And you hear like Heath Ledger's like laugh afterwards. And I'm like, and I was kind of one of those people when I heard Heath Ledger's playing the Joker. And I'm like, Jack Nichols is a Joker. Nobody can play the Joker. And I was kind of one of those people who was very immediately hesitant and almost against the casting of Heath Ledger as Joker. And all that changed when I saw it. I think it was like, I don't know if it's Entertainment Weekly or something, but he was on the cover. It's when he's in the prison cell after he's arrested. And like how we saw him in his full makeup for the very first time. And I was like, and so I remember I was in a Borders with my mom and I think my sister Eileen were leaving. And I just happened to call my eye and I'm like, whoop, like going from... And I did like a hard right turn from the exit to the magazine section. My mom was probably looking at me like, the exit's there. I don't know why you're going that way. And I picked up Entertainment Weekly. I'm like, so I guess that's the new Joker. And all three were interests were peaked at that point because we're kind of like, all right, this is interesting. We could go with this. And I remember, I'm pretty sure it was my sister Stephanie and I who went to go see it. We saw it opening night. And we saw it at the Stony Brook Theater. And... The, th- the parking lot was so packed because in that because it's not just the movie theater parking lot. There's a bunch of other stores in there in the plaza, and on the other side of it is the bank and the Red Lobster. We had to park like in the Red Lobster parking lot, like that's how packed it was. And we're darting in between cars, racing to the theater in order to get tickets. And, and we got our tickets, we got our seats, and we're all the way in the back row in the far corner, like. Like, it's almost like that joke from, like, Rocker's Modern Life. I thought it was going to be, like, Heifer, like, getting a nosebleed because they haven't found a parking spot. Like, 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 Rocco, we got to find a parking spot. I'm getting nosebleeds up here. Like, that's how far up we were. And then the movie, I only saw the movie in theaters once in its initial run. I kind of regretted that. And that's when the, I think when, when we came to Dark Knight Rises, that's when I saw it, like, five times in theaters to kind of make up, uh... About only seeing the Dark Knight in theaters once. Grant, I did technically see the Dark Knight twice in theaters because when I saw Rises, it was part of that that yeah, triple yeah, bill. Yeah. The triple bill begins night and then into Rises. And I remember because Batman Begins, I was like, "Oh, this is so awesome! This is my favorite of the series." Dark Knight, I immediately get motion sickness, and I felt like shit the entire movie. And by the time the movie ends, I'm like, I'm with it's myself, my ex, uh, 
Zach and Dakota, the four of us together, I get up and I'm like, I'm going to be right back. And I'm just, I feel like I'm about to throw up. And I get outside, outside the theater, my theater, like into the kind of like lobby with all the other theaters nearby. And I throw up in the garbage can right outside. And Usher comes up to me. He's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. I feel much better. Don't worry. And he's just like, and I'm like, and I apologize for it for getting sick in the theater. He's like, he's like, no, don't worry. At least you got at, you got to the garbage can. Most people don't. And I got back in the theater and I was like, I felt so much better. Cause like, just how most jokes like things. Like, that movie sucked. They're like, yeah. <laughs> the dark night, you see what it did to me? It made me throw up. I hope you're happy. I want my money back for a movie that came out years ago. <laughs> I want interest for this. Um, I get back to the theater and I'm like, oh, I got that out of me. Let's go for rises right now. And everybody's looking at me. Are you sure you're okay? Like, I'm fine. <laughs> Let's do this. I mean, it reminds me of another time before we get into the movie, last story. Uh, when I got my wisdom teeth taken out, I wake up from after the surgery. I'm still kind of like stoned from the, the meds. And they're like, they like pretty much, they take the, the like xenomorph gas mask off my face. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, all right, your family's waiting outside. They don't like escort me out or anything. They just kind of let me like kind of wander down because I knew where... Because I've been in this dentist's office before, and I kind of stumble into the lobby there, and I just plop down in the chair. My mom and my ex are like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "I'm fine." I'm let's <laughs> woo. Like my face is like puffed out three times the size because it's all swollen and everything, and I'm still a little high at that point. I'm like, "Let's go! It's snowing outside. Can I have a milkshake?" And all kinds of weird things. This is why I'm really glad you don't do drugs. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm looping up as it is. So like, yeah. even when I'm on, even if it's prescription, I get even worse. The one chance we had to see Drunk Tim and we missed it. I, I mean, <laughs> as... Listen, I, I mean, I had a similar experience when I had my wisdom teeth taken out. I don't, I don't do drugs either, but apparently after I got out, I was like in the recovery room or whatever, singing Smooth Criminal. So go, I mean, go figure. <laughs> I mean, at least that's par for the course because you're a huge Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a Michael Jackson poster. I mean, I don't just go sing Smooth Criminal in public, but... I, I mean, yeah, I'm just saying, like, no, like, if it was, like, you're saying, like, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, so I'm like, all right, I think we may have put too much dosage on him for that surgery. I mean, I mean, it's... Take his wisdom sheath, and now it's good vibrations now. <laughs> Who would have thought that? And so the Dark Knight opens up with a bank robbery. Now... When you guys first saw this sequence of, like, this bank robbery of all the, the Joker's goons coming in, robbing this Bob bank, and then the Joker killing off all of his subordinates systematically and then escaping the bus, how did you guys first react to this? First reaction was, I, I, can't, I couldn't think of a better opening for this iteration of the Joker. Um, primarily because it, it introduces... Whom this, uh, who this movie is about. And it's about the Joker. Mm. Um, it's his movie. It's the only time we get to see Heath Ledger as the Joker, unfortunately. Um, and he completely takes command of this film from the very first scene he's in. And he, I was watching it today and I went into the, my viewing of this thinking he's the first person you see on screen mm -hmm. but he isn't because there's the shot of one of the cronies uh leaping out the window or ziplining out the window before they cut to that uh, shot of the joker holding the mask and you're just waiting for the reveal and you finally get the reveal at the end of the bank robbery scene where he says probably one of the 
most uh, quoted lines of the movie where uh, whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that movie, from that moment on, it's pretty much his movie. And um, first impression when I saw it was, okay, this is just going to be a, a fantastic virtuoso type performance from Heath Ledger. Now, I hadn't seen this movie uh, since probably before BVS came out. I watched, I think I watched all the Batman movies before BVS came out. So I hadn't seen it in a little while. Um, So it wasn't that fresh, but still not like I hadn't seen it since Rises came out or something like that. So it was kind of fresh, but not really. I remember certain things, but other things like this opening sequence with, you know, them robbing the bank, I, you know, completely just put out of my mind for some reason. And I forgot how cool it was. And something you're, I know you're going to touch on that I really, I really enjoy about it is that it's so reminiscent of Heat and so inspired by Heat, which is a movie that I saw much later in life than I'd like to admit, but a movie that I really enjoy. seen it. I love it. Yeah. It's great. Um, and I know you're going to get into that. Uh, but Heath Ledger as the Joker, for me, I hadn't, since I wasn't really following the day-to-day news, like I mentioned, or the casting or anything like that for this movie, I just went in and sat down and just took in this movie as it was, and I wasn't really predicting anything. I didn't have any preconceived notions. I didn't have any opinion on the casting. I just knew that I liked Christian Bale as Batman from the last one, and I wanted to come back and do it again. I mean, you could have cast, you could have cast Jonathan Lipnicki as the Joker, and I probably I just would have went along with it, you know. It doesn't matter to me who gets cast. I want to go see Batman. Um, although now I'm I am very interested in a Jonathan Lipnicki Joker. I mean, you wouldn't need much makeup. How he no, aged. <laughs> How he no. Aged. Let's be honest here. That would actually be incredible. I mean, <laughs> l- let's get Jared Leto out of here. You know, thanks for coming, pal. Uh, Jonathan Lipnicki. Like, yeah, Jonathan Lipnicki. <laughs> <laughs> and then people are like uh, like. The like uh, message board is like, you know what? That's a swerve. I was not expecting that, but uh, we'll go with that. I mean, at this point, you heard it here first. A genius, uh, I think, a genius casting move if if they if they were to do something like that. But yeah, no, um, I I remember I forgot how cool that whole sequence was. I forgot just how good this movie is, you know, and just in general. I forgot how much I enjoy this movie. Don't enjoy it as much as, as the other two, and I know that's a controversial take because a lot of people think for some reason The Dark Knight Rises is this travesty of a movie, which I'll never understand why. I guess we'll talk about that next time, but mm. I just forgot how cool it is. Yeah, and like, like there's a bunch of, I mean, I could spend an hour on this sequence alone, but I'm going to try and keep it at a minimum, which... It's a lie. I'll go make those croissants. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, obviously, this sequence was shot in IMAX. It was, like, like one of the first feature films to use IMAX cameras in a fe- in a feature film format. And, and, like, especially, like, if you watch on the Blu-ray, like, cause, like if you're watching it on, like, a 16 by 9 screen, like, it, it takes up the entire 16 by 9. And then when it cuts to the 35 millimeter footage, you have the – it goes to the widescreen where it's cropped and you see the black bars top and bottom. And – this scene was so successful, along with a few other sequences in this movie, where IMAX became a kind of like, all right, we can use that now. We can use this format, especially for specific action sequences, like Hunger Games used part, parts of it. Uh, BBS used uh, IMAX sequences. Uh, Brad Bird for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. J.J. Abrams used IMAX a little bit on Star Wars The Force Awakens. And, of course, Nolan's continued that with 
that with with uh, the Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar. Not for Inception. He used sixty five millimeter, but I'll get into that when we talk about Inception. So. Yeah, <laughs> I realized that I'm just like uh, 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 uh. I'm just like I'm just gonna lose a blow a gasket by the end of it. And everything's gonna be like, yeah, he was talking about uh, uh, film. He, cameras. he was talking in IMAX. <laughs> he was like, that's how his lungs both. expanded out. <laughs> it was it was the size of an entire room. That's how big it was. Max and, capacity. Uh, <laughs> I love that, like on like the Blu-ray features where you have the. They're showing behind the scenes footage of like them like getting adjusted to using IMS cameras, and they have it like on a steady cam. They cut the footage of like how one time the steady cam broke, so you see him like racing across the roof, and you see the camera just topple over and just fall, and it's facing the other side of the <laughs> roof, and you just see like one of the sound guys just immediately turn to it, like that's not supposed to be there. And a few people race over to it, but especially with this scene, is there's two things I, I, I noticed here. Uh, is one. That the mask that uh, Heath Ledger wears is very similar to a mask that Cesar Romero wears in the 1960s TV show. I forget the name of the episode, but there's a big reveal of somebody taking up the mask and revealing that this clown that's on this variety show is actually the Joker in disguise. And I love that it's like the biggest close-up in that sequence is the reveal of Heath Ledger's Joker. Another funny thing is that William Finster, or Fincher, who plays like the bank manager who takes a shotgun to the... Now... Most people don't like their bosses and everything like that. But this guy's willing to go toe-to-toe with people who try to threaten them and everything like that. Employees are probably like, you know what? He's kind of a jerk, but he took a bullet for us. I mean, he was kind of a good dude to do that. I mean... Well, I mean, it is a mob bank. I don't think he was necessarily taking it for them. He was... Yeah, it just kind of... Hey... Don't fuck with our money. Yeah. Or, or, you know what? If I make it out of this alive, I'm going to die anyway because yeah. you just robbed our mob bank and I'm fucked. Exactly. And and especially another connection to Heat, he was one of the main antagonists in Heat. And I, and I always thought that was a really cool connection, uh, connection there. And last, the, the funny thing is when how the Joker keeps everybody in line, he gives them a grenade and he takes out the pin so everybody's holding their own grenade, which is kind of a setup to be paid off later in the fairy scene at the end of the movie. And there's always one, there's only one thing that's bothered me about this sequence. The bus comes in, breaking in the side of the wall. Joker shoots the bus uh, driver and along with everybody else, and he drives away in the bus, joining a caravan that's leaving. There's two other buses behind him that see him come out of the bank. Not to mention everyone else on the street. I mean, if he was like the last bus in the line, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Maybe it was the uh, the mobster schools, so that uh, you know, <laughs> no one's gonna talk about that bus anyway. Cause, yeah, it's like like, oh well, I have whack, I have, I gotta learn how to whack a guy, so I gotta yeah. go to mob school. So that's what this caravan is for. <laughs> All the the buses just had like tinted black windows, so they couldn't even see out of them. So. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> they don't teach little Donnie how to break people's knuckles in elementary school. <laughs> that that has always bothered me too. It's like, first of all, this bus crashes into the fucking bank backwards it's not, backwards it's not like it's going like forward propulsion and everything like that it's going in reverse at this point stays there for quite some time he's taking his sweet ass time and then it just pulls out and everyone oh yeah you know it's normal it, and maybe it's a maybe it's a commentary on how auto on autopilot everyone in a city like gotham might be right um unless something directly affects them so yeah a, a school bus pulls out of a bank that it just backed into oh yeah it's you know I'm just trying to get to, you know, no no one notices. No. So uh, that's always kind of been funny to me, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah. 
And then cuts to later on in the night where the Scarecrow is doing a drug deal with the, the Russian mob who have kind of a complaint with the drugs he sold them. Because Scarecrow's like, well, I got to nickel and dime my shit out there somehow. And they're, like, they're pissed off that they they thought they were buying legitimate drugs. And no, it just, it just screwed all of his uh, customers up. And then we get introduced to these kind of vigilante Batman wannabes with guns. <laughs> Batman shows up, beats the crap out of a few people. Realizes, you know what, I need to turn my head, and stops the scarecrow. Can I just say that the first time I saw this, and you see, you don't know it's not Batman at first, and then you see him shoot a gun. Every time I watch this, I would, I just imagine, like, the idiot in the theater is but Batman has a gun! Oh, it's not him. And and I love how they have Scarecrow kind of be like, that's not him. No. And then, that's more like it. When the you know, Batmobile comes flying through the wall. Because I love that they did that. Almost, It almost seems on purpose to have people have that uproar. Batman using a gun? What? And then just like, you know, hurl like a tomato at the screen. <laughs> it's like, Why no, Why is everybody bring eggs and tomatoes to a speech? Boom, yeah. it was Batman returns fashion. So I've always loved that. But no, I, I, I love the idea of showing the copycats you know, in action, trying to take down Scarecrow, and then he just shows up and just destroys a whole bunch of cars for no reason. I like the appearance of Scarecrow here for a couple of reasons. One, it's Killian Murphy, and anything he's in is pretty We're good. all on board for. Yeah. Uh, two, there's surprisingly too many people who think that The Dark Knight is the one of only two movies in the Batman trilogy. This and rises. Yeah, people. There was a first one. Yeah, people are going. There's a first one, but the appearance of Scarecrow is the reminder to everyone that yes, this was part. This is the second story, second part of a story, and this guy was in the first one. In case you forgot about that, you'd honestly be surprised at how dumb people are when it comes to comic book movies. Like. There are people that I know who aren't necessarily up on all this stuff who think, oh, wait, so is, are, is Wonder Woman connected to the Dark Knight? Is that connected to Batman versus Superman? What is, you know, is that is Suicide Squad Marvel? Or is that, like, these are conversations that I overhear, you know, on a regular basis. People who don't really know, but, who like, do you associate don't with really want. Overhearing these kind of conversations. It's funny, it's funny, too, because it's... It's usually like diehard wrestling fans who act like, oh, you don't know who uh, Katsuyori Shibata is? You're not a wrestling fan. And then they ask if like Green Lantern is a Marvel character. So it's it's that type of funny thing um, where they're so far into their own bubble that they don't, you know, it's like this is clearly, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy happened years and years ago. This is not, you know, things like that. So it's funny how people wouldn't know that Batman Begins and the Dark... you Because know, they set up the Joker at the end of Batman Begins. And well, this, I mean, you know, that's one of the things with Batman Begins. Is it was a financial success, but it was not a huge... Like, it was a huge success, yes, but it wasn't like huge. groundbreaking like how this one yeah. was. It's retroactively yes. kind of a, a part of all that. And I feel like maybe had they known the direction they were going to go title-wise, maybe it would have made more sense to have them all be like the Dark Knight colon something or the dark knight something yeah the or dark knight begins or like batman begins batman colon the dark knight batman colon the dark knight rises you know what i'm saying have yeah. them be more uniform I mean, this, is like, this is the first batman movie that does not have batman in the title yeah 
and which is like, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like the only like this and Rise is the only two ones that have it because we because we have Batman v Superman, Darling Justice, one of the longest comic book names and like and i'm like and i'm like I, I did write it out was like batman v superman to dawn justice the ultimate cut and i'm like like is there any letter esquire and like it's like is there any letter I have edition. i'm like i said to myself is there any letter in the alphabet i haven't used yet in the sentence i'm like oh no wait there's no there's no uh, q q yeah <laughs> and um uh, love you throw esquire in there and, 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 and there we go and then we we solved the problem and i'm like um that seems like something deadpool would do Yes. <laughs> Deadpool Esquire the third. <laughs> um, so it sucks that we only get this is the only part of Scarecrow we see in the movie. I wish we get to come back for more because like you said before, Justin, like the more Killian Murphy in our lives, the better. Yeah. And but don't worry, when we get to Inception we have a lot of him, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm glad Aaron Hollander is getting all that work. <laughs> and so we're shown that the Wayne Manor has not been rebuilt, that Batman is staying in the penthouse and he's got his underground Batcave. And I had this revelation early in the week when I was rewatching Batman Returns. It makes more sense to be Batman to be stationed in Gotham City. It does. It takes too long. Well, and... I mean, he is in Gotham City. The You know, as the district attorney of Gotham, you should probably find out where your jurisdiction ends. Thank you, Justin, for this geographical awakening for me. For why else am I here? I ask myself that for, every day. For astute observations <laughs> such as that. Um, so, because I'm watching Batman Returns, and like, of course, I, I have playful jabs with people about that movie, and I'm like, I watch the movie, like, Batman has that dramatic stand-up when the signal comes in and blinds him while he's brooding in his office, and, or in his, in Wayne Manor. Takes him a few minutes to get dressed, jump in the Batmobile, and drive down to the the only square mile or the square of Gotham and deal with the Red Circus gang. Like it makes more sense for him to be within the center of the city and being able to mobilize in a lot quicker fashion. And I know it's a thing that definitely was used in the Denny O'Neill Neil Adams era of the Batman comics, where it makes more sense that he had that, and also playing up the fact that it was Batman was more like a James Bond like character, which. Nolan definitely aped, uh, aped when it came to this movie, and James Bond will play a lot in Inception. We'll get to that later. He also wouldn't run the risk of leading someone right back to Wayne Manor. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's like when we brought up in Batman Begins, it's kind of like, yeah, he uh, gets five feet away from the cops, and they're like, Whoa. well, he's gone. The, the Humvee that we were chasing is, is disappeared. <laughs> oh, he's going up to Wayne Manor. I mean, There's no way he's involved in this whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, they probably think he's going to get Bruce Wayne. We should probably go warn the guy. He, like, there's a psychopath coming up to his house. And so later after that, we're introduced to Harvey Dent, played by Aaron Eckhart, and not Katie Holmes, uh, Rachel Dawes, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And we have this- I always want to call this guy Eric Eckhart. <laughs> No, whenever I think of his last name, I always think of, like, I always think of Batman. Hi, Chris. Like, hey, Eckhart. Think about the future. He gets shot by Jack Nicholson. He got shot from the uh, uh, different universe. It was it was it was mind expanding at that point. Um, so Katie Holmes has been replaced by Maggie Gyllenhaal. What do you think of that? Do, 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 do. Uh, I mean, I don't want to wait. I mean, the Rachel character is not very well received. Regardless, I don't think. 
This version is a little bit less likable, but a little bit more well-performed. So it's give and take. You know, there are pros and cons to both of them. I think... I think this version of Rachel isn't as sympathetic as the other version of Rachel could have been in this movie. This one is played a little bit more, especially after, you know, the guy on the stand pulls the gun on on Harvey. Obviously, Harvey easily disarms him, but she's all, you know, she doesn't show any kind of concern or any kind of, you know, well, they're out to get you, you know, you're you're really, you know, you're... You could be, you know, targeted. She doesn't show any sort of concern for that. She's just thinking, oh, this opens up a whole new possibilities. And, you know, glad you're concerned for my safety. She She's a little bit less human in this one in that regard. She's a little bit more just kind of like uh, cold. Yes, Harvey Dent, we will stop the crime <laughs> wave with our immovable morals. She's a little bit more cold. So it's like, you know what? You can throw her out that window. No, I'm just... <laughs> no, obviously, you don't want anything to happen to her because, you know, Bruce cares about her. But you don't want anything to happen to her because Bruce cares about her, not because you care about her. Or at least me watching this movie, I don't care about her. Yeah, um, I think I like the performance uh, more than um, what Katie Holmes presented us with in Batman Begins. You do say there's a little bit more coldness to this character. Mm. I think that's uh, might have been influenced a little bit by what happened in Batman Begins. In Batman Begins, she's really um, what's a good word? Idealistic, right? I think they actually use that word to describe her in that movie. Yeah, I think between yeah, so, Scarecrow and Falcone at that one yeah. point. Yeah. Um, this one, she's sort of warmed up to the politics of the city. She's sort of... She's playing the game now. Yeah, she's less concerned with people and more just about getting results. And I I think that translates to a harsher character, but one that probably fits in better with how Gotham City works. Because there, there aren't that many, you know, genuinely good people in any of the in any of these three movies there isn't you know one person uh, aside from just alfred i was gonna say alfred it seems yeah pretty... he's the lucius I, fox and the well, especially with decision making forgot i had it in this but the the, the there's no uh, there's no there's a few characters who have a central moral standing Hmm. uh, in this trilogy. And Rachel was kind of there in the first movie, and then once Maggie Gyllenhaal takes over in this movie, uh, that character loses the moral high ground. It's more just like about prosecuting everyone, cleaning up the city, you know, making sure... um, Gotham is safe, sort of becoming, I I don't want to say like a female version of, of Batman, but kind of has that same drive to just make sure the city is safe. It's over, Bruce. I have the high ground. It's, 
Yeah, it's very strange. I was thinking this earlier in the day. In uh, Batman Begins, Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong, she's the assistant district attorney? Yes. And her boss, who ends up getting killed halfway through the movie, is the district attorney. Right. So you would assume, I guess, just... By process of elimination. Process of elimination. She would take over, but then they reveal that there was a campaign and... Harvey Dent ended up getting the district attorney spot. And why isn't it Rachel? I chalked it up as because he probably had more experience as as a district attorney. And like now, theoretically, she could have kind of kind of like how uh, LBJ took over for JFK. Like he, LeBron James. Yes, <laughs> he took over the LeBron. Like there was a campaign after that lost. And a new president came in. And maybe yeah. it was kind of like that. Then that's how, and like Dent realizes like she was an asset to the office and did such a good job that he kept her on. And then they became romantic together. But they, it's just funny how they never really explained that. It's just like, okay, yeah. go with it. Maybe that's why she's so cold it's in this movie. <laughs> she's mad. She's angry. And yet that's the person she wants to she, – she lost her job, but she's willing to give up Bruce for this. Oh, person. you got to keep your enemies close. This is true. Um, like, a very, a very dark subtext to Rachel in this movie. I mean, I may not be as harsh on Maggie Gyllenhaal or on Rachel in this movie compared to you guys. I mean, I do think there is a progression of her character that she has become wiser to the politics of Gotham, realizing there is a game to play in order to take them, take the mob down Gotham style. Um, I do think Maggie Gyllenhaal is the better actress of the two. I think it's, and sure, like, maybe it's because, all right, Maggie Gyllenhaal is a good-looking woman. Katie Holmes is a good-looking woman. Now, you ask people on the street, between the two, most people will probably say Katie Holmes is the more attractive out of the two. It's depending on taste. I think maybe because Maggie Gyllenhaal is perceived to be less attractive, perceived, I'm not saying that's my perception, I'm saying some people could say perceived to be less attractive than Katie Holmes, that her harsher character's movie is kind of like, an unintentional detriment. Hmm. I think part of that goes to people think of Katie Holmes, they think Tom Cruise. So by association, people just tend to assume, oh, she got Tom Cruise. She's obviously more attractive than uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Right. I'm not saying all people think like that, but I'm saying you can make that association. I think most of the people who say Maggie Gyllenhaal is unattractive have never touched a woman <laughs> aside from you know hugging hugging family high members five. and <laughs> high fives yes so uh i i think that's all you know that's all just that's all garbage but i think her strongest stuff in this movie is are the interrogation scenes yes um and i like when you know they're they're trying to implicate all of the uh the falcone crime syndicate i like this the the work between her and harvey i like seeing that dynamic i like you know, I like the the interrogation scenes. I her interactions with Bruce seem just a little bit. I guess it's because we spent the whole last movie working with the Katie Holmes Rachel off of Bruce, and now it's kind of like, well, who is this? I don't feel anything for the two of them. Who's this? So who's this? <laughs> a different actress here. Oh. <laughs> who's this? Who's this? Or or do the William Dozier? What's this? What's this? A different actress for Rachel? <laughs> There's no chemistry here. <laughs> they should have done chemistry reads. Come back next time to find out. <laughs> Say bad. 
<laughs> She'll be dead in the next movie, so it's okay. All right, so moving on. They, they should have done chemistry reads. I, I don't. I don't. I don't think they have the best. Um, yeah. We're introduced to Aaron Eckhart who's playing uh, a Harvey Dent. We find out that Gordon and Dent do not get along because of Gordon's uh, company that he keeps in MCU. Um, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Yes. I mean, what? Is this related to the, the, the Avengers? You're not the real Avengers, in the words of Tom Holland, <laughs> Spider-Man. Like, what do I think of the Avengers? I just kind of say it like that kind of really overtop <laughs> accent now. Tony Stank. <laughs> Tony's yet. Yeah, this is Tony Stank's house. That's uh, I not... I'm not uh, I'm not forgetting about that. Um, and then we get the the gang's just meeting in the back of a kitchen, Bobby Kennedy style. And um, I always when they're they're going through like the before they go into the kitchen itself, they have to go through a metal detector and hand over the weapons. Like, do they get like a like a coat? Like they like like a ticket for their weapon? Like like oh like like oh sixty four? Like oh yeah here here's your Beretta. Oh okay thank you and everything. And so they all sit down. Loud, the person who is supposed to be doing business with Wayne Enterprise, we find out, is actually a money launderer for the, the mob here in Gotham City that ba- Bruce Wayne and uh, Batman have been kind of investigating. They bring out a TV saying the cops are – then Lau is, like, doing webcam with the mob saying, the cops are on to you. I took all your money to, for safekeeping. I'm going back to China. I'll know where the money is. Don't worry. Okay. It's an old, it's a tube TV they put on the test. Yeah. With no webcam attached to it. See, that's always been my big problem. And I understand, like, broadcasting it, cool, but yeah. not being able to respond to anybody in the room. The reason I never pay attention to what's actually happening in this scene is because I'm just saying, all right, you just put a 40-inch Zenith television that somebody could win on Family Double Dare in 1993 <laughs> on the TV. How the fuck does he see or hear them unless there's a camera somewhere else or a microphone somewhere else that we're not privy to, but it's just really funny. And it's one of those things that you would not, this is the last, the last stand for that type of monitor being used. And you know, now they would have put like a Microsoft surface at the end of the table. If that was made now and Felicity smoke would have been hacking into it (laughs) with her surface. Or it would be like Suicide Squad was all the iPads being used in that movie. <laughs> Tim, I, I figure out how they did this. It's like in Blink where uh, they, they time traveled. Yes. Yeah, so and they wrote everything out. out. Yeah. Knew all those Obviously. Responses. It's all the doctor's fault. Of course. And so the Joker comes in. We get this first real introduction to him. And we get the magic trick. Um, <laughs> Which by far was the funniest scene in the movie when I first watched it. He definitely erased that goon, I have to say. I hate you. <laughs> I wrote that down. Like, I wrote that pun down, and I'm chuckling to myself. Like, yeah, this is going to go over like gangbusters, I hope. Uh, <laughs> you know what this scene always reminds me of? I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. This is a reference. I, no, I no, 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 no. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a meme. It's a meme. It's a, it's a series of photos. It's It's a shot of the Joker. Um, and he's saying, smells like up dog. And then there's a shot of the one gangster saying, what's up dog? And then the Joker looks at him, he has, has like a smirk. And then, it, and then there's another picture of the gangster looking all like angry, oh. like, oh, you got me. <laughs> what's up dog? <laughs> I love the fact that we have gangsters on either side of the table and they're filmed in their certain way. And Joker's the only one centered frame. He's the one who has all the attention. He has the, all the control in the room. And we have Michael Jai White playing Gamble who gets irked with Joker and decides to attack him at one point. Joker reveals he has grenades attached to him. And I, I feel like it wasn't like the till the 10th time I watched this movie when I realized when he at, Gamble asked the Joker, like, you think you just robbed for me and you just get away with it? I never heard Joker just saying, yeah. 
And he's just really quietly under his breath while he's got his finger on all the pins of the grenades. And I and like I I've laughed at it ever since. And I thought I just find it some of the most the funniest, like, unessential things in this movie. Like there's some parts where it kinda of strives for humor and it kinda of hit or miss. I'll get to where the the humor really misses later. It involves a certain SWAT team member. Um oh, and oh, so God. Yeah, and so the Joker's like, you know what? I'll kill Batman as long as you pay for it. Half of what you got. Gamble's like, all right, I'm putting a contract on you. A million uh, uh, alive, half million if you're dead. And a lot of this, a lot of this movie takes it takes uh, references from other Batman properties, especially from the comics. Especially one story arc called Batman: The Long Halloween, my favorite of the Batman comics, where you have the the fall of the traditional uh, gangsters in Gotham City and the rise of the freaks, as it were. There is the rooftop scene, which I'll get to in a second, where Dent, Gordon, and Batman all make a, a vow to stop the mob at one way. At, at um, they pretty much just say like, "All right, any cost." What? At any cost. At any cost. Yeah, I was like, I was trying to look at the phrase. I'm like, Duh! <laughs> for the greater good. The, the, greater, the greater good. good. Um, and even later, when in the comic where Dent and uh, uh realize, you know what? The mob can't launder all the money because Bruce Wayne stopped them from laundering in all the banks. So they're stockpiling at a warehouse and it's just a, a, like a hangar full of cash and they set fire to it in gasoline and many more. Like Dent pretends to be dead at one point to get the upper hand of the gangsters. And so there's a bunch of moments in Batman Long Halloween when it, that parallel moments here in The Dark Knight. So I say if there's one comic you want to read that is very similar to this, read that. And so... With the rooftop scene, they realize they need to get Lao back because he's in China now. Batman goes to China. <laughs> yes? Can, I mean, I just want to say, before we really get into it, I love the Hong Kong stuff. I would be so down for just, like, a movie. Just a live-action movie. Just, like, a one-off. Doesn't even have to be connected to anything of just Batman in China. It was just, Arrow Season 4. Just yeah. go, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Season three. But, Season but, three. My apologies. But here's the thing. I want it to be good. Oh, zing! Okay. Uh, just Batman in China just doing stuff like this. I love this. And especially getting Lucius Fox in on the act. Yeah, they'll definitely have better wigs. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm flashback sorry. hair. Oliver's wigs. Flashback hair. Yeah. Flashback hair is, is something. Did you did you watch the finale yet? No, I'm not. I, oh, I, I'm you, not you, yeah. there's, something, there's something about the flashback hair that's going to make a little bit more sense when you get to... Uh, when you get to the last episode. Okay. So keep that in mind. And but uh, what, the, one of the things that I really love about Batman in Hong Kong is Lucius Fox tagging along and being part of it. And the thing, <laughs> I just love Morgan Freeman so much. I love when his cell phone rings and Lau was like, we do not allow cell phones and blah, 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 blah. And then he just pulls it out like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I had it. Forgot I had it. I love the way he says, forgot I had it. I think, so nonchalant. I, th- I think about that often. Oh, forgot I had it. Another, another one of the lines that I like often pops into my mind from this movie, I don't even associate it with being from this movie, is, if you're good at something, never do, do it, it for, for free. free. I think about that a lot. Because as, as, as broadcasters ourselves, we realize you know, we have a skill set. Yeah. As, as we provide this free podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and I realize, I'm like, yeah, we, we, we are worth our weight in gold. Patreon. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so Batman goes to Hong Kong, grabs Lau out of his, uh, out of his building by force, <laughs> uh, and s- attaches himself to a-, a cargo plane that's flying over and takes him back to Gotham. This sequence overall, Ooh. Justin, your thoughts. 
I thought it was really cool how they pulled it off the first time I watched it. Um, the uh, where he just like throws up the flare, and the smuggler plane is able to latch onto it and drag him and Lau up. That was probably the most visually stunning scene in the movie. Mm. And then he like it's called Skyhook, huh, Mister Wayne. Uh, the CIA used to do back in the sixties. By, by the way, can we just give a round of applause to Alfred for having? The, the guts to take one for the team and spend an entire week with the entire <laughs> Russian ballerina team. You know he did. That, to me, is like the most Batman 66 thing <laughs> in this trilogy. Them More than flying away with a palm? Running, you know, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that may be the most direct reference to Batman 66, yeah. but this, to me, the most in-premise kind of Batman 66 thing him just running off with the Russian ballet and then them just being on this yacht and then him just kind of I mean obviously it would be under much different circumstances that yes, he would just hurried. be dipping we out gotta, of that but we gotta accompany the ballet to her vacation spot <laughs> like I don't know if he should be going the young boy should be going with them with all those women together like that's how Ed Harry would be very apprehensive to the idea of Robin spending so much time with uh, yeah like I, yeah Bruce would would make sure that he like brings his textbooks or something of course oh he'll be studying the entire time don't worry <laughs> studying what <laughs> human anatomy <laughs> it's um, uh, think of it as an extended fishing trip <laughs> and I love like I love the moments where. Batman's standing on the edge of the building in his new bat suit, and he jumps off and glides on over. Like the only problem I have with the scene where it's like loud and his men like firing on Batman as he's taking off, taking down one of the guys in the office is like one guy's holding like the gun like a kind of above his head and firing it. It's like person's never fired a gun before. Like ah, it's kind of blind. I don't want the muzzle flashed in my eyes. It looks very goofy. It's like one of the only few goofy moments in this movie that's like, no, it's probably another take at the can somewhere you could have gone with, but. And I realized something about this fight scene, especially in the earlier scene when he's dealing with the fake um, vigilantes. The fight scenes are definitely better choreographed this time around compared to Batman Begins. Yeah. And I think it's really enjoyable. It's like, I'm watching it and like, oh, these are not as bad as I expected. Like, because maybe it's just... I, I, we've gotten to such a point, like, with the Martha rescue in BVS and how the awesomeness of that scene is and compared to like like oh these are gonna be total crap this movie i'm like all right this is actually a lot better than i remembered i love how the martha rescue is now like the the big first of all now the term thanks to holy batcast but second of all now just like the big like the measuring stick looks like oh well this this is like the big five-star match that you can't you know you can't surpass this 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 is the big thing and i love that you know the fighting in this trilogy isn't the best i i think in rises it's the best i think in rises it get yeah it does get a little bit better they they adapted the style but uh i i don't put too much into that because 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 unless it's really like really spectacular like like the martha rescue or like wonder woman was I don't really mind too much because I'm, you know, I'm here for the characters. I'm here for for that type of thing. I'm here because I love these characters and I love seeing these worlds. And I don't need, you know, the I. A lot of people I feel put a lot of stake into action choreography, um, 
But I do think that overall across the board, it's gotten better because we're seeing great action on TV every week now. I right. mean, you can't tell me that some of these Arrow action sequences don't beat the pants off of what we saw in, in this trilogy. Yeah, I mean, I still think like the benchmark for fight scenes for Arrow is probably the first Ra's al Ghul and oh, Oliver yeah. fl- fight. Mm-hmm. In the mountaintop. In, in the mountaintop. I think it's still – that's probably – their best scene. I, I really do like the season two finale between it cuts back and forth between uh, Ollie and Deathstroke in two different times fighting and how they've changed as, as people overall, and which I thought was really cool and everything. But I feel like that one just is like kind of the high mark. I think it's also our biggest disappointment. Like we talked about, when we did Arrow season three, uh, the season review. They were like, "Yeah, like that should have been the season finale, not the mid season finale." It's also a little bit different because those one versus one fights are more they're duels rather than you know fight scenes. It's like the difference in Star Wars between like a gunfight between rebels and Imperials right. and like the lightsaber fight between Luke and Vader. It's two completely different things. And I think what's really lacking in the Nolan series is something like that. You don't really have a lot of those one-versus-one duels. Probably the best example of it is Bane versus Batman in Rises. Yeah. Uh, And that's in pretty much the opening act of the movie. Yeah, that's just like how the end end of the first act is the beatdown that Batman gets from him. Yeah. Um... So well, I I think the fight scenes in this movie are a little bit better than um, that in Begins. Uh, there's just I would like to see more just one verse one stuff. Right. I mean, like shooting hand to hand combat's never been a strong suit for Nolan. I mean, there's a little bit in Inception that he does a little bit better. I'm curious. Like, I doubt we're gonna well, I doubt we're gonna see any hand to hand combat in Dunkirk. It's gonna be all like artillery kind of based stuff and Navy and and Navy. So I, I doubt we'll see that, but I'm curious to see if he, like he just progressively will get better and better. And in the Lao uh, kidnapping that, that Batman does, we get the first use of the sonar technology that more, that Lucius uh, develops to use for, and like, just like a submarine, <laughs> or I could say a bat, because that's how bats see. But I'm not, I won't. Uh, like, I'm only called Batman. I probably should know a little bit about the I'm Batman. submarine man. Submarine man. Yeah, just, I'm sub. Uh, sub. I'm subman. I'm Jared Fogle. Uh, Mr. Lau, what? There's a giant submarine flying in the sky. Wait, what? <laughs> see a giant submarine just launched from one building to another. They it's, call them blimps. It's a dirigible, duh. Let's let's be let's be proper and use the Zeppelin. correct terms there. Uh, Zeppelin, yes. As long as not lead line, they're okay because they'll have good times and bad times. And All safe get... now. Everything's lead line. <laughs> um, and so Lau makes a deal with the district attorney, saying like he'll cop to everything as long as he has protection. There was always a moment when because Gordon and Dent are watching it from the observation room and. Rachel is doing the actual interrogating. When she walks out to t- speak to Denton Gordon and then comes back, I thought the lawyer w- was going to kill Lau because it's just it's just holding on Rachel and she's not looking at him. She's looking down at her feet, obviously looking for her mark where to stop. And I'm like, I always thought she's going to look up and it's just like the lawyer stabbing Lau or something like that. Or like <laughs> a cyanide pill that he just took. And I'm like, oh, oh wait, no, it wasn't any actual violence. Okay, cool. Whew. And so we had this montage of all the gangsters in Gotham being arrested. And Judge Cirillo, 
Hi, I I was actually in this movie. You are you're a middle aged woman. <laughs> Judgedin. <laughs> and it's like five hundred defendants be reined in at once, and I love the moment like how the defendants plea. The stenographer was like, "What the fuck am I supposed to say?" Noise. I I I really wanted five hundred forty three stenographers to be also. Yeah. Just like I can't keep up, sir. I can't do this. I mean, like, and I love when it cuts to Maroni and the Russian just kind of stand there, just like. Uh, we'll, we'll just wait our turn to put in our plea. Don't worry, we'll be fine. You know what I find interesting in this movie? In one scene, Dent goes from... He, at first he says Falcone, and then he says Falcone. Did anyone else catch that? No, I never know. I didn't know he used both pronunciations. I did not notice that, no. It's And it's weird because I had always thought that they say... Falcone. Falcone in this movie. And on Gotham, they say Falcone. Yeah. But he did say Falcone at least once. It's obviously that the and it was filmmakers weird. were not sure which pronunciation to go with. I think is is it is it like Raz Al Ghul and Ra's Al Ghul where, where, where pe- people like, people use them interchangeably and yeah. just call them Falcone? Raz Al Ghul, like that lady from Raz Al Raz Al Gore. <laughs> like that fucking lady. It's it's such a, <laughs> such a, like it's. It gives me nightmares, that pronunciation Raz. right there. It's like, Zaz! <laughs> Zaz! Zaz with his jazz hands coming in. <laughs> Zaz hands just starting up uh, all kinds of shit in Gotham these days. But yeah, I, I thought that was really weird that they nobody would have caught that. Unless, is that something, because he did refer to one of them as, like he was for, referring to the person, Falcone, and then he, I think he said the Falcone crime syndicate. Is that... Is it called something? Is it called a Falcone crime syndicate? But he's called Falcone, or is that was that just a mistake? Was that just a slip? I think it was a slip because, like, I was actually after I rewatched The Dark Knight today, I actually had put on The Godfather because I wanted to go to sleep. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> <laughs> no, because actually I was going to take a nap anyway, and I just wanted to put something that I just kind of kind of melt away with, and it just eases me into it. And The Godfather is such a nice and just kind of relaxing movie for the most part until those violent scenes that I could just drift on off because they say the uh, Michael Corleone but it's the Corleone crime family it's not like Michael Corleone and then the Corleone crime family I, I always thought it was Corleone no it should be Corleone I, interesting I th- I th- so I, could you pronounce it both ways then because the guy if- who's not Italian like in the second one the senator the, yeah. the Irish guy says Corleone I think he does, but I think he does that on purpose to piss off the Italian heritage that Michael comes from in that movie. You could say it both ways. Um, if you're Italian, you would probably pronounce it with the extra syllable at, at the end. But you could just say Falcone and you'd be fine. I've always felt that on Gotham they stick with Falcone because them. Falcone and Maroni. Mm. It, you know, it, I, maybe it could get confusing. So maybe Falcone and Maroni sounds a little bit, you know, they're a little bit more distinctive from each other. Mm. But uh, yeah, so maybe that was just a slip. I've never noticed that until this time. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then we introduced the mayor questioning Dent with about his decisions. And we get to introduce the mayor's eyeliner that he's got going on there. You know, he plays, uh, he's uh, an actor from Lost. <laughs> the mayor. Really? And it's funny, his it has to be his eyelashes. It it is. It's 
I've read interviews that he's given, and people always think that there's something like he's wearing eyeliner, but it's just his natural um, eye form. Uh, his natural eyes. eyes. <laughs> the eyes have it. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of him now. His name is Nestor, Nestor Carbonell. Car- Carbonell, and he looks like he's on like one of those CW vampire shows or something like that. Like, yeah, he he, he looks. Could be a true blood. He, he, he looks like vampire diaries guy. He looks like he went through his mall core emo phase in high school, but he's still trying Stick to pre- still try- <laughs> he's still trying to preserve the crab core attack attack thing. Except he's also the mayor. You know, he's the first seen mayor. He's truly he, a... Tr- I mean, he's, always, he's, the, he's the first one on the scene when everything goes wrong. <laughs> um, and then we're introduced like saying, like, if this goes wrong, Dent, they're going to come after you. If, if, they, if there's any slip-ups, no like, somebody's going to have dirt on you. They're going to use it to their advantage. And that's when a... And the mayor steps to his window while he's saying this. And all of a sudden, boom! A dead Batman hits the window like a bird. It's one of the few times in this movie that even when I watch it now, I jump when that happens. Oh yeah, it's kind you're of not like, expecting it. And it's kind of like the one the scares, it, like two of the scares in Jaws that always makes me uh, jump. It's like when the Hooper's down with the boat. Like I know uh, Ben Garner's head's gonna come out of that hole and he's gonna be missing an eye. Always makes you jump. Or when Hooper's in the cage near the end, he's gonna try and fight the shark. I know the shark's going to come from behind, and yet I still jump every time. And I love, like, the, on the Joker card, like, with a real Batman, please stand up. I'm like, please stand up. Please stand up. And, of course, I had, I had to listen to some Eminem afterwards because... Oh, no. There's no excuse. There is there is an excuse for me. I, I, I am an excuse list. I am an excuse of life, but that's that's beside the point. I, I realize this. Oh, dear. <laughs> I, have, I have a great self-esteem. It's just... Uh... So you're saying you're the real Slim Shady? Perhaps. I mean, he did play Robin in a music video once. A version of Robin. Moving on. Anyway. <laughs> I was going to let that linger there for you. Um, we also skipped over the scene where, like, uh, Dar- Harvey Dent's like, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Let me just state the theme right then and there, people. Hopefully this won't come back to bite me in the ass. And so, while... Bruce decides to run, do a have a uh, charity dinner for Dent for his future campaign. It's going to be in three years. We get a video message from the Joker with one of the fake vigilantes, and it's one of those moments in the movie where, like, when Joker's operating the handheld camera and videotaping this guy who's been beaten up a little bit, and he says, "Look at me!" and he screams, "Look at me!" It's one of those moments in the theater, like you could hear a pin drop, and I. Like, it's one of the few shared experiences I've had in the theater where you, every single person's like at the exact same emotional space. Like, oh, oh. we're so screwed if anything else is going to go wrong here. And I love it because it's kind of a reference to one of the first appearances of the Joker in 1940. He would make uh, threats via the radio, announce his crimes, and try and stop me. And very similar. Like, like Joker's always taken over a kind of broadcast medium. Whether it be also like the the broadcast at Babin and I do have his Smilex commercials. I mean, love that Joker. It's it's just what you have to do. Uh, I thought you guys were gonna comment on that, but uh, yeah, I thought you had some words to say, but uh, 
I'm sitting here by myself. Uh, I like Batman. <laughs> thank you, Jamie. Uh, I'm sitting here by myself. Uh, talking to myself. That's that's chaos too. Well, well, let me let me just say this. Um, on the Joker in general, um, just I'm very close to your f- face right now. It's <laughs> a little uncomfortable. Would you mind scooching over? <laughs> I'm so sorry. The the joys of sharing a mic. Uh, you know. Yeah, I bought the wrong adapter to have three mics on. I apologize. It's it's a whole thing. Um, you know. I'll tap this situation, you know? It's weird to me that this Joker, for some people younger than us, is, like, their definitive Joker. Yeah. And not because it's, oh, well, these kids don't know about Cesar Romero, or blah, 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 blah. But I, it's because, for me, he's not, and I don't say that that because he's not great. I say it because whenever he does something, I try to imagine the animated series Joker doing it. I try to imagine what that would look like and sound like. You know what I'm saying? Oh, and, look at me. I'm telling you, Batman, try and stop me. And, and I know that it's like, oh, just why even compare? But it's just a natural thing that, that happens for me because I just – it's just what my mind goes to. Um, so in that regard, I don't think he's the definitive Joker. But in terms of live action, um, I think this is like as good as you can adapt the Joker for a modern film – Without going the Jared Leto, oh, well, this could just be some random meth dealer mm-hmm. in your neighborhood route. Like, this feels like, this. it feels right for the, for the movie, you know, for the tone of the movie, for the time. Well, I don't, I don't know if it would play the same if this came out today. I don't think so. And I'll get into the kind of the political feelings I had towards the movie, towards the third act of the movie, and I'll get into that later. But um, I agree that and everyone, like he's the perfectly built antagonist for this movie, and he fits tonally in it. None of the decisions, like tone-wise or creative decisions that Nolan's made in this part, is a bad one. We all realize, like, okay, this all works within the confines of this movie. Nothing's out of place except for female-written characters, because as Justin and I have noted in his earlier movies, writing females is not a strong suit. Don't you agree? Yes. Thank you. We have agreed on. I was just like, I'm just like, like I'm just, I'm like I'm just gonna. <laughs> Don't you agree? No. <laughs> no. And you know what? I'm leaving. <laughs> My opinion was that strong. It made him want to leave. I mean, jeez. Um, Wrong. And then we, so we get to the actual dinner, and we start cross cutting between that what the threats being done against Commissioner Loeb and uh, Judge Cirillo, and. Always me. Yeah. I always me. It's always you. Um, I always find this a little weird that Bat- uh, Bruce says, I'm willing to quit being Batman if it's for you. Yeah. You know, for this Batman, it works. You know, for, for this, because this Batman has kind of a different trajectory than, you know, the, the typical lore of, of uh, you know, throughout the history of comics and... We do stupid things for women, us us men. You know, we, we, we do that. People do stupid things for love. And whereas us as the viewer, we don't want... We're, no, 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 no. What do you for her? Throw out the window. You don't need her. Be bad. You're Batman. What are, you, what are you talking about? No. But it says a lot about his motivations to kind of anoint Harvey as the leader for Gotham 
and have him take up not the mantle of Batman, but have him take up the mantle as Gotham's protector. And it gives him a real motivation to do that in that, hey, Gotham will be safe and I can have Rachel and I can live a happy life. My cake and, and you too. Have my cake and yeah, exactly. So in that regard, I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, why would Batman just want to stop being Batman just because? Oh, well, here's the guy. All right, do that. And what am I going to do? I'm just going to brood in the Batcave for the rest of my life and not actually go out and do something because you know he needs this on a molecular level. You know that he needs to go out and do this stuff and be Batman. But we'll get into more of that when we get into Dark Knight Rises and that gap in between his activity. I was going to say to what Chris was talking about, I think that's Bruce's main motivation in this movie because before the Joker starts fucking everything up for Gotham in this movie, Bruce is very close to achieving all his goals in Gotham. Yeah. Because he cleaned out the Falcone family and begins. He helped get every other mobster behind bars in the first act of this movie. There really is nothing else for him to do, provided that Harvey Dent stays Gotham's white knight and continues persecuting things. So he's very close to actually um, completing all the goals that he set out. Prosecuting or persecuting? Prosecuting. I was going to say, like, is there a bunch of witches that he's persecuting? Like, you're like, no, that's what we have to go after after that. (laughs) John them. (laughs) <laughs> Salem Witch Trials are revamped in Gotham tonight but he's very close to achieving all the goals he explained out to uh, to Alfred uh, in the airplane during that scene at uh, in Batman Begins so it kind of seems natural that he'd be like okay I did what I came here to do let's move on from Batman right and like this is not a, a new concept for Batman to do this, at least in movie form. Like, Mask of the Phantasm, before he fully becomes Batman, he questions if he's going to the, break the promise and leave with Andrea Bowman. He's willing, he wants to get engaged with her, but as the universe kind of, like, conspires against him and to keep him apart, and in hell, even Batman Forever, Bruce questions if he wants to, with Chase Meridian, he wants to have a relationship with because it seems like, due to who, her psychologist's background that they may have a healthy relationship that she may help him cope with his problems going on. Like, those two iterations, I had no problem with it. This one, I think, maybe it's because they actually burn files at later on, like, later on in the movie when he says, I'm going to give up Batman, give up Batman to these terrorist demands. Like, um, I don't know. It just seems a little weird for me that he's willing to go to that degree for it. And like you said, Chris, like, people do... A lot of stupid stuff for love. A lot of people do for loved ones. And maybe it's why... This is obviously... This is based on a comic book, but it's not a comic book movie. This is a crime thriller with a comic book character. Like, you look at PVS, that is a pure comic book movie. And that's why like, I, a lot of people had problems with like with Ben Affleck's Batman killing people. I'm like, like I, have more, I have less issues of Batman going off the edge and killing people than him giving up his... Uh, his job as Batman in Gotham City over uh, a few events. I'm like, that I don't buy. Like, him killing people, going crazy? That's a little bit easier for me, a pill for me to swallow. So, Joker's plan is initiated. Commissioner Loeb is poisoned. Judge Cirillo is told by a few cops, like, given an envelope, read it, open this envelope, and actually 
open the envelope, read it first. Like that, that's how you have to do it. So you don't just like they do X-ray vision. Like, all right, read it, then open it up. And she's blown up. It's always weird. Like the cops really don't react because we cut to a shot of like the cops, um, in their cars as they're driving away as the car blows up. Were those cops in on it? Yes. After rewatching it today, I very certain there and because they give her the envelope. Right. And I, so I presume they're the one who playing the bomb yeah. and everything. Okay. Because they don't really react to it because I never really... I think that's why they don't react to it. Okay. Because I know if it was just like, it was like that split second, like they were like, wait, was that behind us? Or like, or like they were like... Ah, <laughs> uh, we'd have to go back. Let's like, we're already going forward. We'll just say we didn't see it. Yeah. <sighs> Plus, you can't... You, there's one-way streets. There's a one-way street. Like they, have the, like, they have to go all the way around. have to go make th- three right turns. It'd be right the fire to deal with this rather than them at that point. Um... And that's when the Joker kicks in the doors at the this kind of dinner that he's that's being thrown at the penthouse. Fun fact: the backgrounds of the cityscape, it's an entire CGI set. It's a whole green screen set. Oh, George Lucas would be thrilled. Yeah, and so and I love like the fact that uh, Bruce Wade takes out a guard who's like trying to strong harm him, and he loves like two moves takes out and just breaks the shotgun if he takes it apart. He's going to his panic room where he has all his bat suits. There's oh, thank couple, God you have a panic room. As a couple's having sex in Bruce Wayne's bed, maybe 50 yards from people with no door. There's no doors in that apartment. Like, do people really go and do that at these type of parties? I've never been invited to like, uh, a... Clearly, you've never been to a frat party. But, but this is not a frat, frat party, party, though. This is like an upscale townhouse party. You know, people wearing dresses, drinking champagne. Eh, different income level, same thing. He was probably he probably was a frat guy. And she's oh, probably, probably, oh yeah, oh by far. I don't know if I want to say that the woman's sorority sister or anything like that. But I love the moment where he's going to the panic room and like you said, like oh great, you have a panic room. Shoom, you gotta oh, be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he locks the hat. I love that moment. It's like fine, you're gonna leave your fluids on my bed. I'm gonna lock you at my panic room right there. Um, and then we fluids. have the uh, and we kind of missed the before when. Earlier on, Joe catches up with Gamble and he says, well, how, do you want to know how I got these scars to tell him the story about his, his father was a drinker and a fiend, killed his mother and did that to his face? We had a reprisal of that story by Joker talking to Rachel, saying that uh, his wife uh, got into gambling troubles and did that to his own face after she had been hurt by the loan sharks to make her feel better and now she can't stand the sight of him. Can I just say that these Joker lines, especially those in particular, my father was a drinker. They're great. His delivery's great. Everything is great. But after every fucking neckbeard idiot walks around saying these lines for like for the next three years after this movie is released, I'm so sick of it. Like I'm so over. This Joker, not because of anything that Heath Ledger does, because of everyone else. Just like it's so overexplained. It's like it's like someone walking up to you and being like, you, you know, have you heard of the Beatles? I, it's like that. It's like it's so out there now. And it's oh, we get it, we get it. The scars. He chose to play. All right, I, you know, it's like go quote. The Joker from, like, three seconds in Birds of Prey or something like that. He doesn't even have any lines. Go do that one. You know, go... Stop. Go be the Joker from the Batman OnStar commercials. Just be something... I'm tired of hearing about this Joker. 
Bob Gunn. Any in America to alone, boys. See, like that, I can deal with, like, any lines from 89, like, the pen is truly mightier than the sword. I'm all for it. But if I, like, like you, like, like, well, I don't know how I got this horse. No, I don't give a shit at this point. I'm sorry. I think that speaks a lot to a movie when one of the greatest criticisms you can make about it is how, is how oversaturated it became within pop culture and just general knowledge. Of, yeah, it became such a pop culture. Yeah. It part, became part of the zeitgeist. It, yeah, it became bigger than what the movie was trying to say. I mean, this is the closest thing. 2008, the summer of 2008 is the closest thing to 1989 when it came to Batmania. Yeah. As much as Rises was, like, so anticipated, but, like, the Dark Knight was everywhere when this yeah. came out. especially the viral marketing that they were doing Which was smart, and I love that. And I always thought that was a really clever way to market the movie and everything. Um, and so, with back to the dinner scene, so Batman shows himself, beats up all the Joker goons. Joker's kind of a shit hand-hand combat mo- uh, person in this movie. And I do love the fact that he's got the trick blade in his, boot, in his shoe and everything. But And so once Joker realizes, all right, we can't take him out hand-to-hand, he grabs Rachel, blasts the window out behind him, and drops her down the uh, out the window. I always found it weird, like, how his arm is positioned. Like, that shouldn't have shot out the window. should have shot the window next to him, like, how his arm is angled. But neither here nor there. Maybe he's like that guy in Hong Kong. Yeah, that, like, ah! That this insane is how angle. Movies. This is how we should guns in this movie universe. Blah blah blah. I'm gonna shoot above my head. This is how I aim things. People turn to the side. I shoot above my head. He's the teammate in Call of Duty you don't want. <laughs> and then Batman dives out the window to save Rachel, and neither one of them should be alive. He should be dead. This is my least favorite scene in the entire trilogy. Because his, his his cape isn't open up to slow down yeah. their inertia whatsoever. And they just kind of like, ah, we slow down a little bit. It's like the, like, Point Break does that at the end of the movie. When they both, ju- when Johnny Utah jumps out the, the plane and goes after um, Brody. And like, you gotta, you gotta jump the gun, bro, Johnny, and out of the parachute. And they open the parachute like 30 feet above the ground. <laughs> Like that, I could buy because that because that movie's universe built up like you know, we could have a conversation falling out of a plane and would have a problem. Now I just want a Patrick Swayze Joker. <laughs> that would have been great. He, he could even like look like Bodie. Yeah, but just as With the, the long Joker. hair and everything. Yeah, <sighs> that would have been a cool like '90s Joker. Oh man! Now you get now we imagine for a, a really cool. Batman movie that we're never going to get now. Well, I mean, Patrick Swayze is a ghost. He could could come back and... No, he come back for a ghost for the sequel. Not a Joker movie, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> uh, Oh, God, I'm going to hell. You know, that, that sequence would have been a lot better if after, you know, Batman dies to save Rachel, the Joker just kind of looks over. <laughs> and then a DeLorean door just fucking knocks him out. <laughs> Great shot, Doc. You're never going to guess. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go back to the chemistry. So, 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 I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go to Rachel. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, shit. Or, or it, 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 it could be. <gasps> a ma- wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
in that moment, we could discover that Lucius Fox is actually Doc Brown. In this movie's universe? In this movie's universe. And then we could have uh, a race swapped back to the future in this universe. I mean, the template does pretty much everything else in this movie. Just have back oh my fucking God. I want this so much now. I want Morgan Freeman in a Back to the Future reboot as Doc Brown. Literally Doc Brown. It was funny. On the way over, like, in, in our case, we'll, we'll, in our luck, we'll probably get Tyler Perry as uh, Doc Brown. <laughs> Based on the success of the team, the team and team with, sequel. With, um, with uh, Kevin Hart as Marty. Oh. Hey, <laughs> I love Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart's, yeah. I, I love, as a comedian, I like Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart is a comedian. I've I never seen his it. movie, so I can't his speak movies, to those. no. Um... So after that scene, we get the Donald Glover as Marty McFly. Is he too old now? Maybe, but I, I but that I go for Donald Glover. I can watch him in anything. And so after that, Bruce confides in Alfred, like, "What should I do with this guy? I mean, he doesn't seem to have any strict pattern like any other criminal." And he has the speech like of of Alfred's past as, as being a soldier, and there was a there was a guy who was stealing precious. Uh, presses rubies and throwing away the size of tangerines. Another line that's kind of butchered from this movie. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. Another part of his philosophy. Yeah, it's, it's, here. it's it's a meme now. Yes. <laughs> However, like that line, I have no problem with. Like that, like the scar speech. Like yeah, I'm kind of over over and done with. But like some people just want to watch the world burn. Like any internet conversation, that meme has probably popped up somewhere. And it it kind of does something where. It takes something that is incredibly apropos and, like, has all this meaning in it. And it's, like, something that the internet does a lot where they take these important things and then they just make a big fucking joke about it. So you can never have that full experience of, oh, yeah, wow, that's really... No, you just think of some shithead posting a meme instead of understanding the full experience of it. You can never have that experience again once they take it and kind of make... It's like taking a priceless painting and then, like making like a motivational poster out of it remember those old motivational memes yeah. yeah or or putting like the impact font on it it's like taking the mona lisa putting impact font on it i kind of like this one let's leave it alone bob <laughs> what were we gonna say justin i was yeah it's like um yeah this is a pretty deep scene in the movie you know it's really the point where batman is like i give up he wins and people have taken one of the best lines of that movie and just like, oh, some guy put uh, grape jelly on his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Some men just want to watch the world burn. That is the only way to make peanut butter and jelly. I don't know why that Story. would be. I just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> okay. I like strawberry too, but I don't, I think my modus operandi is grape jelly on my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I like, I like strawberry jelly too. On a bagel, where it belongs. Are you telling me there's only one way to earn, eat certain foods? Are you trying to tell me that Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? curveball. <laughs> <laughs> or, or no, shit. it's kind of like when I watch Lord of the Rings now, when the meme is wrong. Oh yeah, it's uh, one does not simply and Good, he's like, not it's even like making, him holding up like like the uh, the three fingers and it's it's, it's not, not even the line. it's not even the line. What are you doing? Like the great See, in that, Lord of the Rings when it says like when he says that it's like the great eyes always watching when it says one is not simply walking to Mordor it's pre it's early, it's a few lines before that he's kind of like no he's kind of like 
the with, first person who made that meme just wanted to watch the world burn. Yeah, he he was the asshole. That is so. In- Imagine being that person and being like, okay, I know this isn't what he was doing during that line, but I'm gonna make it anyway. And then it just became everyone. I've used that. It's and I've never even seen Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's actually funny because the. The moment Sean Bean actually says that line, he's got like the perfect facepalm face that probably fits the meme even better. Yeah, and I love when people post like that facepalm, like when somebody uses the wrong meme to for the wrong Lord of the Rings line. And that is also the funniest thing in The Martian when they're discussing the Council yes. of Elrond <laughs> with Sean Bean's in attendance. He's the only person quiet in that scene because I was in that movie. Um. And so, at the same time this is going on, the Joker makes a threat in the newspaper saying that he's going to kill the mayor during the Commissioner Loeb's uh, funeral that's going on in Gotham. Uh, Mr. Reese, the person who is... Uh, Mr. Reese, <laughs> Mr. Reese. And his stupid face that he makes. I, dude, like, I, I, know, I know who you are. I know you're Batman. Weird extras in this movie. I mean, like, there should be, like, an award for who's the weirdest extra in this trilogy. Like, it may go to the CIA agent in the next movie. We'll get there. Don't worry, folks, because I have a lot to say about <laughs> Littlefinger when we get to that movie. But this guy is... like, oh, fuck. <laughs> It looks like he should be in the goddamn disco how he moved his shoulder like that. Yeah, well, so is Littlefinger. Oh, man. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, I mean, the whole Mr. Reese mysteries. Mysteries, He he makes like a Jim Carrey-esque face, so I think that was... I'm the Riddler! I'm of A lot of people, you know, oh, Oh well, he's actually the Riddler, and then in the third one, they're gonna... And then that never happened, thank God. Yeah. I just realized mysteries. Mystery. You never noticed that before? No. Wow. Mr. E. Nigma. Edward Nigma. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, oh, and and that's cleverly played because it's not like he was Ed Nigma. Because then obviously we were like, oh, well, then they're, they're setting up the Riddler there. But having him just be called Mr. Reese. It, it's, you know, it's like in Batman 66 when the Penguin calls himself KG Bird. Yeah. It always reminded me of that P. kind of. Penguin is return address. <laughs> or when Alfred was Gus. Yes. Or, no, A.L. Fred. A.L. Fred. That's what it was. I mean, it was just... Okay. Something I need to bring up. Is Nolan ashamed that he's making a comic book movie? Is he ashamed of the comic book property? I wouldn't say ashamed. I would say he's trying to change the perception, the perception of it. Uh, great, we, like he is coming off like the Schumacher movies, so I understand, and like how the early 2000s movies of comic books were kind of hit or miss. But go on. We talked about it when we reviewed uh, Begins last week about the concept of world building and how much that factored into what uh, Batman Begins ended up being. And the Dark Knight follows in those footsteps, but becomes even less of a comic book movie than um, Begins was. Because you have that science fiction element in Batman Begins with like the mysterious weapon mm. and you get that fantasy aspect with him going off to uh, Nanda Parbat to train um, 
this one, it's just, as you mentioned earlier, uh, just a, um, a crime thriller. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say ashamed of it because he does sort of return to that science fiction route when we get to Rises. But I would say he's trying to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah. Even if it means, even if it means, you know, it's not as comic book like. Is it a hindrance? I don't think it is because for everything except the really stupid scene with Batman and Rachel falling out um, the window to their should be death, uh, it captures my suspension of disbelief. Mm. I can actually believe that all of this is happening within the context of the film, of course. Right. Um, and the same can be said of um, both the movies, actually, but particularly Batman Begins. Right. And Chris? I agree with Justin. I just think he had a job to do here. And that was... First of all, get movie studios to realize that you can take these properties seriously. Mm-hmm. They don't just have to be comic book movie doesn't have to be the genre. It can be the, you know, the over, you know, it doesn't have to be the theme of every, every movie. It's the overarching what these movies are, but they, there can be so many different styles of, of comic book movie now, as we've seen it, as Marvel has done and, uh, all the DCU movies have radically different tones. That is, I think, directly stemming from this. It also gets audiences to understand that you can take these movies seriously. And people who may have never stepped foot in to watch Batman Begins, just it being what it is, maybe have seen this movie and say, all right, okay, you can watch these as an adult without having to turn your brain off. You can leave your brain on and enjoy these the same way that you would enjoy a movie like Heat or something else. Yeah. This just happens to have these really colorful colorful characters, and I use that relatively because this is obviously a much more dark per- portrayal of, of superheroes and supervillains and things like that. It's very toned down, you know? It's very... It's much more muted than you would get in a Batman 89. But I think that was Christopher Nolan's job here, to... This is done so it never has to be done again. It ne- you, now you can do anything in comic book movies and audiences will go and watch and accept it because this has already been done and they know they already know, they've been conditioned to know that these can be quality movies. It's not going to be like the 90s Captain America yeah. or Darkman or, or something like that where they, you know, you can enjoy it maybe for what it is but it doesn't have the mass appeal and only nerds are going to turn out for this. Right. So I think that was what Christopher Nolan's job was here. And I don't think he's ashamed of it because if he was ashamed of it, I feel like he didn't have to stay on and produce Man of Steel. You know, he mm. didn't have to do anything beyond this trilogy. He didn't even have to do a trilogy. He could have did a one and done and been done after Batman Begins, you know, but he saw this through. And I feel like you don't make these movies on accident. No, especially how these movies have gotten, like, if you look from when 
Justin and I covered following and we've moved up till now, how his career has escalated in scale. Now, I think of like this trilogy and another trilogy that comes to mind is the Spider-Man trilogy that Sam Raimi did. Like, that was unabashedly a comic book trilogy. Mm-hmm. And it knows that. And like, sure, three has its problems. That's studio interference and a lot of decisions made on that. But that is a tone that goes throughout and knows it's a comic book movie. And I love it for that. And it's like, all right, we know exactly what we're all, what we are and what audience we're going for. And then you have this trilogy where it is take like I mentioned before, it's taking a comic book character and trying to say if he was would exist within a cinematic world, a heightened reality, this is probably how he would react. This is how he would function. This is how the world would react to him. And like what I mentioned before with Heat, where we have like the bank robbery in the beginning, we had the kind of modus operandi between criminals and cops and how they would deal with them and how they would surveil them and how they would try and take each other down. And like that's what the next like plot point is with Batman actually being a detective in this movie. However, there is also something else with it, like why I am such a fan of Zack Snyder's movies in the DCU, because it takes the tactileness of Nolan's movies However, but using more, I guess, more as digital technology, having kind of like, all right, we have Doomsday on screen. We had Superman and Batman on screen as along with Wonder Woman. And it's the perfect, like, I think it's the perfect blend between the kind of fantastical of like how the Burton movies and the Schumacher movies were and how Nolan's heightened reality is. And it is the perfect middle ground between the two of them. It's almost like Justice League animated movies coming to life in yes. live action you know because those those dc animated movies have been quality for a while yes. most of them so it's almost like that because you can watch those the same way you can watch like batman the animated series and you know be engaged and interested and not be tuning out because it's the super friends or something like that right so i feel like it's just a live action extension of that when Zack snyder produces the dceu movies now so another thing i want to touch on is that i don't think the avengers would have done what it did had this trilogy not done what it did for audiences what do you mean i don't think the avengers is anywhere near as successful if these movies did not happen as we know we know where as in we know what audiences want or like we know what this product is and let's make our own stamp just in terms of the the acceptance by the general public of comic book movies okay yeah i'll go with that i feel like this was like this made it okay like you know how I'm, i'm gonna make a weird comparison but you know how the stigma of a band like Rush was always that like oh that's you know just geeks and like burnouts and whatever and it's like this is prog rock band who's how's it ever gonna have mass appeal and then that movie i love you man comes out and suddenly rush is okay with a mainstream audience and then they get booked on like the tonight show or something like that or it's they become a more they got the rub from something that is more mainstream than they were so that now going forward they're in the conversation i feel like christopher nolan gave batman and comic book movies as a whole the rub by making these movies so that everything going forward is okay now these are a part of pop culture and not just geek culture there's no more dividing line i think he broke that down with these movies i i would compare it um 
from a movie standpoint, kind of like what Star Wars did with science fiction movies in the 70s and 80s, sort of taking it from like that B-movie, well, not really B-movie status. Kind of schlocky. Yeah, like, uh, you know, just, oh, they're just simply adventure movies and turning it into something socially acceptable for everyone to go out see and love and obsess over it. And I agree with Chris. Once this movie came out and was adored by so many people, um, and also I think Iron Man came out the same year as this, did it not? So I think between this movie and between Iron Man, you had this sort of double punch of, you know, really well-made superhero movies that don't hit you over the head with the fact that they're taking place in a comic book world and both super successful um, at the box office and at a critical level. And that really opens up the door for so much of what Marvel has done and what uh, CW has done and DCU as well. Yeah, and because both of them have very different intentions because, sure, Iron Man is an origin story and it's ta- like taking a D-level kind of D-list character previously and making him a mainstream character due to all the decisions making of like the casting of Robert Downey Jr., etc., etc. Yeah. And that, that that's the tag at the end, the very first tag where it says that the Avengers initiative is kind of something that could theoretically happen and how it's nearly 15 movies later and nearly 10 years later, how, what was happened since. And then the only problem is like, I feel bad for Hellboy two, which is also came yeah. out this summer. And yeah. it's kind of like, that's why we'll never get Hellboy three because it was not successful enough because of just the, I guess the counter programming did not work or it was just a bit luck of the drawer. And I do find it funny because Guillermo del Toro, the director of the two Hellboy movies is on the special features of this movie talking about it. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, is this any residual anger at, no, it's obviously he did not do it on purpose. It's, it's, Hellboy 2 was successful, but not enough to warrant a third movie. I feel like if Hellboy had waited until a post-Guardians of the Galaxy world, yeah, it could have done, you know? Because I remember when the first Guardians trailer came out, I remember seeing people like, uh, I don't know if audiences are going to be all that interested in Guardians of the Galaxy. And then it's just like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, everyone in the world besides me has seen this movie and loves it, so... I still recommend you see it. I, I'm sure I will at some point. It's just never been on my on my checklist of, of stuff to get to, but I'm sure at some point I will. But it's also got to be one of those that you watch with me, because I'm just going to be all right, what's this? Who is this? Why do I care? What's this? What's this? That's twice the universe. What's this? Chris has never seen. <laughs> anyway, back to the movie at hand. So, Batman... Uh, Takes a few bullets, shoots them into some bricks, rebuilds them with some uh, 40 baloney uh, science technology right there. Examine it with science. <laughs> uh, Luce Fox asks, why is the R&D department burning through so much cash? Uh, Commissioner Loeb's uh, funeral goes off. The Joker and his men are actually cops in disguise to take a shot at the mayor, but and shoot and apparently kill Gordon here. Okay. Which... I never bought because in the trailers for the movie, they show him, I think, in the interrogation scene with the Joker. So I'm just like, okay, he's not really dead. All right. 
it's obviously the Joker didn't load blanks. He shot Gordon in the back. So did over a matter of eighty dollars. September seventh. Now I said Monday. <laughs> now I wonder, like, okay, did like they like wheel to the hospital and they say like, no? Let's pretend that he's dead. They, like, how, like, how did this Nick Fury let's pretend to be dead bullshit happen? And nobody was in on it. I get even hit. Batman didn't know. At least he was pretending not to know. He gets hit in the back, but does he get hit in an important place in the back? Like, if he got hit in the shoulder. I mean... Yeah, it's gonna hurt, but, like... I mean, I guess he was just really spineless when it came to the proceeding happenings after that. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I do question myself, like, how do I have friends? How do I maintain relationships with my terrible puns? It's a question that does keep me up at night. I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. We're gluttons for punishment. It has to be. Otherwise, I mean, I Pun wouldn't have friends. I mean, I I found a perfect picture. It was like it was a SpongeBob meme, shocker. Um, and it was just like Mr. Krabs with like a dead-eyed look, was looking at SpongeBob's next to me. It's like, and you can see like SpongeBob's <laughs> half hiding and smiling. I know, shocker. And it says the two faces you get when a good pun happens: a smile and it's just like, God, why am I friends with you? Moment. Because you are the Punisher. I know. I, I, my jokes are Punisher. You are. Something else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 uh. And so, Dent uh, takes one of the wounded, uh, captured uh, Joker goons to interrogate him. A lot of interrogation in this movie. And the actor who's playing is is, uh, David Deschmelchen. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He He looks like that name. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because this is like one of his first big acting games. He was on Fat Man on Batman. He was doing an interview, talking with Kevin Smith. He was being interviewed about it. And one of the first scenes they shot was the dead interrogation where Batman comes in. And like, this is the first really big role he's gotten. And then he goes very big when he says, I don't know what's going on. And then Aaron Eckhart flips the coin and supposed to, Christian Bale's supposed to come in, hit his mark, and say his line. He doesn't. He just starts laughing. And so David's just kind of like, oh my god, I've totally embarrassed myself. Why am I doing this? And, and, like, and Aaron Eckhart started laughing too. He said, why? Why? What did I do? What did I do wrong? It just turns out that the coin landed on top of the cowl perfectly. And they're just like, oh, this is a perfect moment. We can't let this pass up. And so relaxed him after that. He showed up in Ant-Man, and so he's walked between two worlds because he's in the MCU and a DC movie. And this season, he was Abracadabra on Flash. Oh, yeah. Oh. And I'm just like, he should be throwing cards at people. And I actually kind of like the Abracadabra uh, character. You know who he kind of reminds me of? He kind of reminds me of Robin Lord Taylor, who plays Penguin on Gotham. Kind of. He yes. has that vibe to him, the really pale kind of, you uh, know. Like a Cisco vibe? <laughs> <laughs> Quack, 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 quack. No, I, I get what you're, ta- you're saying because when I watched this movie today, I'm like, he looks really familiar from somewhere and I don't know where it is, but I could definitely see him being uh, very penguin-like and yeah, um, abracadabra too. I mean, he's just magical. Focus, focus. I'm pretty sure when I was seeing this in the theater... I'm pretty sure someone sitting near me was like, is that the Joker? And uh, I, I, I don't remember if it was, this was in the theater or I heard this somewhere else, but I know for a fact that it was like some girl like, is, is that the Joker? I remember somebody being really confused about that being the Joker. Like, and just me just being like, uh, did you, have you seen the cast 
did you see the, you know, I mean, Heath Ledger has passed at this point. I mean, he's been <laughs> dead at this point. Like, he's been memorialized. So, what would you say you, you do, do here? here? I mean, that's like the only question I had for you right there. Oh, man. So, at this point, we get to see Dead's kind of darker side come through. And we haven't really talked about his character thus far. What do you thought of Aaron Eckhart's performance up until this point in the movie? Uh, he seems like a... A guy who just wants the best for his city. They do kind of hint to, like, his dark nature where he kind of supports an authoritarian government when he talks about the Romans appointing a dictator in times yeah, of crisis. Yeah, because he's not back down for the fact that Caesar never gave up his power. Yeah. Which is kind of like, which we'll kind of get to again later on with certain decisions that Batman makes. But he... he really just seems like someone who, like Batman, wants to clean up Gotham. Um, I think he's more... Maybe not Machiavellian, because that's sort of what Batman is. The end's just fighting the means. Um, And also very Ayn Rand with the kind of objectionism, like just the single-mindedness in his goals. Yeah, it's, it's more like Machiavellian, but on a different path just from just um justice as ha- as how he perceives it because he's ready to kill the um he's ready to kill the guy who shoots at um at Gordon right and only Batman is able to save him so he he has this moment where he almost becomes like Batman taking justice into his own hand, and ironically, it's Batman who saves him from going down that path. So it's interesting to see a dense personal relationship with the law in that scene, and really starts to set up the final act of the of the movie in that scene. And I love the moment when Batman says, "Like you're breaking my heart. You're going down a dark path that I cannot follow." <laughs> You know what? You actually said that better than... Natalie Portman? Yeah, I know. Chris? I agree. I agree with Justin. Um, I've always really liked this portrayal of Harvey Dent, although, I mean, I would have given anything to see Billy D. Williams get to play Two-Face, because, I mean, I... You either live long enough to see yourself become a villain, or you die. (laughs) A hero. You truly do belong uh, uh, here among us in the clouds. But but no, um, I love his dent stuff a lot more than I love his two face stuff. Yeah, especially because I feel like the two face stuff is just kind of like the third act. Let's just get this in, you know, just because we have to because it's part of the story. I feel that Dent as a character, I don't want to see him. I don't want to see him become Two-Face. You know, they did that good of a job with him leading up to that, that you you want this guy to be good. You know, you, you, Batman, believe, the Batman believes in him. Everyone believes in him. Gr- great slogan, Harvey. I believe yeah. in Harvey Dent. Which is a line from Batman Long Halloween. And... Oh, slogan and shit. And, uh, you know, 
you don't you don't want to see him become Tuva, or at least I don't. Every time I watch this movie, I'm I'm always hoping that maybe he'll just you know he'll have a change of heart and everything will be all right. But it but it's not. Uh, I mean, he looks frightening when he's when he becomes Two Face. Uh, that that is some great great. Uh, I I mean, I guess you can explain how they even do that because when I guess when we get to that point, but yeah. um, but yeah, I I, I really. I like him. I find him to be a more interesting character in this movie than even Bruce. So, really? yeah. Which I guess we'll kind of get that into our criticisms of the movie later on when we pros and cons of the movie. And like you guys, I do. I Aaron Eckhart's the kind of person I can watch in any movie. I mean, I love them in the movie "Thank You for Smoking," where he plays a lobbyist for big tobacco. And he's the hero of the movie. And you support him in everything he does. I mean, like, that's how good of an actor he is and how charismatic that he can be in a role. And he brings that to this movie where Harvey Dent's kind of hard on Bruce Wayne and the Batman character. And you kind of think, like, all right, like, you want Rachel to be with Bruce because he's the main character. But he does have those sensitive and tender moments with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. You're like, all right, you support this guy and you want to be with him. And I especially love the scene We'll get to it later when he's talking about the night is dark just before the dawn. And that's what kind of happens next. And because the Batman said, Bruce Wayne said, you know what? I'm going to turn myself in, hold a press conference. I'll reveal myself to the public. And so I can stop this terrorist from seeking vengeance on Gotham City. And he, Dent does not want him to do that. He says, you can't give in because we he, he recognizes the fact that Law and Order can only go so far with his brand of justice. And without Ice-T. Yes. And that you, he recognizes that there is a need for Batman. And so during that press conference, Dent says, I'm actually Batman. And he gets arrested and such. But I, I never noticed this until recently. If you look to how that, that scene is lit, half his face is in shadow and half his face is in light. Interesting. Right? Hmm. And ironically, the stuff that's actually illuminated is the face that's burned. Interesting. I don't know if that's just because... I understand the shadow is probably intentional. Which side the shadow fell on? I think, well, that's just how the light in the building is kind of laid out and everything. But how that is... Uh, how Wally Pfister and Nolan, how they wanted to craft the light in that scene, I, I think that was done intentionally. Um, and this is like one of the problems I have with this movie is it's like Bruce is like, I'm going to be done with Batman. He th- burns all his files. And I'm like, well... Two fucking scenes later, you're gonna be like, you know what? All the all of our files and all the people in the narrows were we never gonna reference this movie. That's gone. Thank Alfred, God. pull him out quick. <laughs> it's like it's kind of like it's a, it's like that joke in Casper when they realize like the the will is actually like, oh, there's a treasure here, and he has to rip it out of the fire. It's like <laughs> this is before Dropbox. I mean, he doesn't have those backed up to the cloud. No, unless like unless it's because like it's Batman. Of course, I have hard drives built in somewhere elsewhere, but somewhere else. <laughs> that arrow noise that that transition noise and so revealed like mag uh i was say maggie uh that rachel goes to dent saying like why are you doing this because like well joker's gonna come after me and the batman will take him down in this prison uh caravan that's gonna be going from here to county and dent gives her his coins they're like you can't leave this a chance i'm not because revealed because we've seen us flip his coin He's made several bets because of his coin. It's his father's coin. It's just the two. Fi- it's the same face on both sides. Double sided coin. Double sided. Great flick. Great flick and Frank. Flick. The guy is brilliant. brilliant. And 
earlier on, like we even get a passing joke between Gordon and, and Dent saying that he's two-faced because he's working internal affairs, which is the police department that polices the police. Um, and so we get to the big action sequence with a uh, whacker drive. Uh, Second Nolan movie with uh, an IA officer. Yes. It's uh, maybe like, well, then again, he did not write that. That's true too. That could just be a coincidence. Yeah. It's just like crime fiction is definitely a part of Nolan's uh, entire filmography. When it came to following Memento, this and Better Begins, like the prestige, not not so much. Ironically, the one doesn't really deal with crime. That's our favorite movie of his, his filmography. I mean, if you listen to this, the, we've already reviewed the prestige and such. Yes, like oh, not peeking behind the curtain whatsoever here, and so okay. This SWAT guy, who's the passenger seat, in the passenger seat, and he's, like, making jokes and, like, commentary during, like, the attack that that uh, Joker and his men are in a 18-wheeler that has, like, that is meant for an amusement park that says laughter. They spray paint Esther and make it look like slaughter. And he's like, what is that? Is that a bazooka? When Joker pulls out RPG at one point. This fucking guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> he ruined, he kind of, like... Like, humor is kind of hit or miss in Nolan movies. Like, this one, swing in a fucking miss. I am sorry. It really annoys me. Yeah, I think the only time the humor works in this movie is when it's Alfred and Bruce together or Bruce and Lucius together. Because, well, Michael Caine and, and oh, Morgan yeah. Freeman are just tremendous actors and, and dealing with Christian Bale, yeah. Yeah, both of them have very good chemistry with Christian Bale. Yeah, they one of them should have been racial. <laughs> they have the, all the chemistry. All the chemistry's having in there. Bruce, don't make me your one uh, thing for a good life. <laughs> yes, Mister Wayne, I know you want to wait for me, but I'm not going for you. I wait for Andy Dufresne. I would, I would die if it was just Bruce in love with Lucius Fox. There's a swear for you. I mean, just like... Type your name in and leave. <laughs> oh, man. Type your name in as you wish. That's why he realized as you wish he meant I love you. <laughs> but And I love the sequence here where the Joker's are, goons are firing on the, the armored car and it's like, Nothing. Nothing's getting through. They pull out the RPG. Um, Batman's going to jump in front of him. But before that, he crashes into uh, a garbage truck that's trying to take out the armored truck. Before that, that was actually done in the miniature. The Batmobile crushing the the, the cab of the garbage truck. That's actually mm. a miniature cut in with uh, live footage because... It was it was too difficult to prove that otherwise uh, to, to kind of replicate the Wacker Drive like on stage or something like that. And another thing to point out to all you Nolan fans that are kind of blind to this, like this Batman kills a lot of people. I'm sorry to say, yeah. he kills at least one person in that. He kills at least one person in that truck. And then later on, when he flips the 18 wheeler, Joker's passenger does not get out, from what I can tell. So, yeah, when they say like. Batfleck can't kill people. Bale's Batman never killed. Well, I think there's a difference between killing intentionally and like yeah, firing machine just gun on sort SUV. Of yeah, I'll give you that. And using mini guns on your bat plane. 
Well, like you always assume if you're going to fight crime, you know, people are not going to be, you know, walking out of the doctor's office with lollipops a day later. <laughs> yeah, Batman was really nice. He put me in traction, <laughs> but he gave me a lollipop. And he gave me a Batman Band-Aid. <laughs> it made all better. Um, Let me kiss your boo-boo. <laughs> Does that feel better? Good. <laughs> um, it's only like another CGI moment when they they get out of Wacker Drive and they get like the helicopters going to provide air support in this sequence here. And if Joker's goons have fired like uh, cables across between two buildings and the helicopter flies into it and crashes, this is a big CGI moment. And maybe it's because this movie is so grounded up until this point that the CGI just kind of just throws me here. I don't know. Is that like, I don't know if that was just me or not. I couldn't remember if that part was CGI, but I think... At least, like, the impact between the actual body of the helicopter, once it's already blown up and it gets it hits yeah. the air truck, that's real. But the crashing into the building I, and how it spins out of control, yeah, I'm pretty I think sure that's that, digital. Yeah. There's actually, a, in this entire chase sequence, there's a lot of really well-done effects. Yeah. The flipping the 18-wheeler, if you've watched the... the the special features on the DVD, which I know you have, mm. um, they actually flip that for real. Yeah, and because like how they do that in movies is like they'll have like a underneath the car they'll have like a compressor and it shoots like a you know, like a tree trunk or a piece of metal into the ground to flip the car over, and like there'll be some kind of smoke kind of discharge afterwards, and they're like how are we supposed to flip a an eighteen wheeler? So they have like a giant piston underneath the the eighteen wheeler that does it. And I love how in the movie, when you see him flip it, you see the smoke come out from behind the wheels of where the firing has gone off. And watching the special features when they're doing that, they did test. Hey, it worked fine, everything like that. So, and like we had a lot of free space, but like when we get to the actual location, it's a very narrow street, and it's in the banking district, and there's a bunch of manholes on the street. And the driver asks, like, "What are those manholes for?" Like, "Oh, those are a lot of the access points to the bank vaults." And so you had like a half mile space and you had two places where they could do it theoretically. And so we had to hit his mark like an actor in order to make sure he didn't send that into a manhole and then get stuck or anything like that. Can't believe it's a manhole and he fell in it. <laughs> and of course, like they're shooting that with like seven like cameras, like a few IMAX cameras, a Vista Vision and 135 millimeter. And like they only use like two of the angles, but... Another moment in this movie when I saw it in the theater, and you felt the entire theater just like <gasps> lands, and then you feel like everybody exhale, like "Whew, holy crap, that uh, that worked." As well as the same time earlier on, Batman's the Batmobile takes an RPG to the side, it blow it is damaged beyond belief. Batman escapes to the Bat Pod, and the Batmobile blows up. Your feelings on the Bat Pod? I love the Bat Pod. I you know. I think it is, first of all, to sell toys. So, yeah. well, well, the first one we had, the Tumblr, he has to have a new, where does he get those wonderful toys? toys. But I like it. It's cool. It's sleek. It allows him to do things like inexplicably ride through a mall. Yeah. Um, Which was done for real. And it's just, you know, it, it's it's fun. I like the bat. I like how it goes sideways, too. And I like the noises it makes. I think I like the bat pod more than I like the Tumblr. It's mm, close. It is very practical. I will give it that. And like how maneuverable it is. And I love the moment where the kids are in the car. Yeah. They're shooting 
pretend fighting, and all of a sudden, cars really start blowing up in front of them. They're like, whoa, Dad, I'm magical. You gotta see this. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's gonna believe me at, at, at school on Monday, but it's gonna be so worth it. Um, so the Joker reveals to be still alive after the crash. Wants the Batman to hit him. Doesn't. Joe, the Batman crashes his bat pod. Joker's about to kill Batman, or at least we find out who he is. Hey, Gordon's still alive! Inexplicably, he, Shocker. Was, he faked his death. His wife's pissed. You know, the one thing that I feel about this is that the audience who doesn't pick up on, oh, well, we didn't see Gordon really die. We saw him get shot. We didn't see the dead body, so that means he can't be dead. The people who don't, you know, pick up on that trope that if you don't see the body, then they're not really dead. Um, I feel like that would make you mad throughout the rest of... So you kind of sit there with your arms crossed for the rest of the movie. Because, oh, well, Gordon died now. Mm, fuck this. Fuck Christopher Nolan. Fuck this movie. So I feel like it kind of ruins that period of time if you're not kind of in on it and like, okay, yeah, he'll be back. Because we didn't, you know, we didn't really officially see him, the dead body or anything like that. Um, but I feel so bad for, for Barbara because oh yeah she, she you know that is the most heartbreaking thing to have them knock on your door and she instantly knows what's happening and then she's so just mad at batman and just you know and the kids and everything like that i i feel so bad for her i can't imagine what it would be like to have someone knock on your door and say you know your significant other is dead and then like an hour later they're oh, still alive we like, have made a mistake <laughs> You know, like, what the range of emotions that must happen throughout that span of time. It's just so... I feel like at the end of the movie. I always feel so bad. Um, but, yeah, that that's the one thing. For, for, her, for her, it's one thing. But for the audience, I always feel like it's another if you're not really aware that Gordon is still alive during your first viewing of the movie. I was actually really confused because I was like, wait, I've seen trailers... And that part hasn't been shown yet. So I mean, like, do they change it in the final edit? And I was like, oh, no, he's still alive. Okay. Like, I thought I thought that the filmmaker swerved us, and I'm like, all right, Gordon is dead. And when he did show up, I was like, whew, whew that was a, a close-up. <laughs> you, uh, you almost had me there. Like, you, you good, you, uh, <laughs> moment. And so... After that, Dent and Rachel have both been kidnapped, and Batman decides to interrogate the Joker. And we get the interrogation scene, another interrogation scene. And I have a problem from the scene the very at the jump because it's like Gordon's talking to him initially, and you have the one like lamp is the only thing that's illuminating them in that scene. And so Gordon gets up and he says, after he's talked to the Joker a little bit, and. Joe was like, the good cop, bad cop routine. And it's like, no, nah, not exactly. As Gordon leaves, he turns on the light, and Batman's been behind him the entire time. How? Well, not, not that. Heath closes his eyes before he gets thrown down. He, antici- he anticipates the, the shove. Really? Yeah. Hmm. You watch it back. He he readies himself before that. And it's like it's the only thing that kind of like, because like, he's always like... It's a split second before he, he closes his eyes before he gets slammed in, I guess, the crash mat that's probably on the table and everything. And it's one of those things, like, 
maybe I assume that's probably the best take. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have used that one. But and so starts the the moral quandary between Batman and Joker in this scene, and how the real philosophies between the two of them start to be explored. Your what'd you guys take away from that scene? And then Batman like eventually beating the shit out of him, trying to get answers, and not it doesn't work. First of all, great scene. Might be one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, but I, I always liked that, um, the line where he says, you have nothing to do with, with your power. You There is no way for you to use it here. Because mm. I know what's going on and you don't. And the only way you're going to save one of your two friends is if you play by my rules. Love that whole type of of psychological battle of the wits there. Um, it, it's also... I could imagine only the Heath Ledger version of the Joker doing this. I couldn't imagine the 89 Joker doing this. I couldn't even... Even though I've only seen a couple of scenes of... Um, the animated series Joker. I couldn't imagine him doing this, but with Heath Ledger and really with the setting this this film takes place in, it just works perfectly, this entire scene. I think it stinks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fine. No, it's... uh, I feel like this is one of those moments where the first time you watch it, you're like, wow, I'm really watching this. Like, in in comic book movies lately, I feel like there's a scene in every movie where I'm like, wow, I'm really watching this. Like, I'm really watching Batman and Superman throw down. Or I'm really watching Wonder Woman just take out an entire, you know... Town. Fucking town of... With her lasso. Like, mm-hmm. I'm really... what This is really happening on the screen right now. Or I'm really watching, like, 12 DC characters on my television for this big crossover, mm. you know, like that type of thing. And this is one of the first things I, Oh wow, this is really cool. This is like different. Like, I feel like this is, has some big imp- importance for, for people that at the time, maybe I didn't understand as much as I do now, but it's, I guess when you think of this movie, you have to think of this scene. This is, you know, the Batman interrogating Joker. It's kind of, I feel like it's the signature of of this movie. It's like if you could have one image of this movie, I feel like it would be this scene of them sitting across from each other. Yeah, and I agree. And I mean, um, I even love the the fact that like when the changing subject matters between the two of them, the camera moves because like a lot of the camera is placed behind them and it kind of it's on a dolly and dollies back and forth and the dolly moves at times with the changing of the subject matter of the scene. So you kind of realize like even on an emotional level, like, all right, the tone of this conversation has changed because of the camera placement of it. And then how everything's nice and controlled and they're both eye level with each other. Um, and how it goes to handheld camera work when Batman gets frustrated with like the conversation, how it's going. And you had that moment where he's back screaming, where are they? And he's hitting the Joker over and over. And he's just, and the laughter is just getting louder and louder. And you're like, and you have that moment when you're in the theater, like, this is this is a crazy person. Like, th- we're not dealing with a rational human being whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 
And so at the end of the conversation, he says, you have to play my game. Rachel's at one location, Dent's at the other. Here are the two, here are the two addresses. See who you can get to first. Uh, Batman says he's going to go get Rachel. And then the cops go after Dent. We cut to Dent and Rachel at their two separate locations talking to each other on walkie-talkies as they're surrounded by uh, oral drums uh, attached to TNT and walkie-talkies between the two of them so they can talk to each other on the, while the timer clicks down. Dent tries to escape, accidentally knocking him in one of the bins and he's got gasoline on the side of his face. Batman shows up at the Rachel location, kicks in the door. <gasps> Swerve! It's not the Rachel location. It was actually Dent's location the entire time because he knew he would go after Rachel and he switched the locations up on him. He grabs Dent, drags him out of the building. Building goes up. The cops arrive at their location. They're about to go in. Rachel's like saying, Harvey, I want to be, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I will marry you. Boom! <laughs> Rachel's dead. And... There was a moment of hesitation that I felt in the theater, like, no. Like, you fooled me once, movie. Like, you tried yeah. to kill Gordon. I'm like, I felt the no same way. way. You're not going to do that. And I'm like, oh, shit, she's really dead. And now Harvey Dent's face is on fire right now because of the explosion, the residual explosions going out of the building and it set him on fire. The first time I watched the movie, I did not pick up on the fact that he fell to the ground and half his face got covered in um, in gasoline. So I was like, I had to go back the second time I watched it, and I saw it. I was like, oh, okay, that's how he became Two Face. Well, I knew that like he had obviously the explosion, but like. Isn't he kind of far away for half his face get blown up? And then I saw all the oil. And yeah. Yeah, kind of felt dumb. <laughs> Could you imagine him just in the hospital? <laughs> just trying to rip the half of his face. <laughs> I feel like I'm two different people. <laughs> it's funny because, like, traditionally in the comics, like, Salvatore Moroni's on the witness stand and Dent is cross-examining him. And Moroni throws acid on his face, and that's what burns him. And the movie kind of does like a variation of that during the yeah. uh, one of the first cases that's going on, where yeah. he's cross-examining a low-level associate of the Moroni crime family, and the guy pulls something out of his jacket. He thinks it's BS, and no, it's a cheap gun that does not work. And Dent just clocks him and takes the gun away from him like a badass. You're half expecting the gun to just like have a flag pop out going bang. <laughs> bang. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean. And I just was Cesar Romero was the one who understood, like, with the bang. And his crazy laugh. Yes, I've killed the crown prince of crime. I've come to kill Dent. Um, and so earlier on, Alfred was given a note by Rachel when she was staying in the penthouse for her own safety concerns. She reads the note saying that, telling Bruce that she's going with, uh, She's going, yeah. She's going strong with a uh, dance and everything like that, and it's just uh, they're gonna they're, cool. they're going pretty solid, man. <laughs> I don't know why I just turned into like a Midwestern Canadian right there. I didn't mean to, but um, yeah, man, it's just going really well. Um, that she's gonna marry Dent and everything, and Bruce is brooding over the fact that he did not save Rachel, and uh, Dent has been blown half to hell, and Alfred was gonna initially give him the note, but it takes it away. Did Alfred make the right call? Well, as we'll see in the next movie, no. (laughs) 
obviously it was not like Nolan's always said he's always he never wanted to concentrate on more than one movie at once. Just like dedicate your life to that and move on. Like that's why he never said trilogy initially because like let me just do this one Batman movie. I can do another. And by the time Rises came out, like let me just concentrate on that. However, later on when Alfred burns the note at the end of this movie, it's like even at the yeah. end of the as far as I'm like. Mm. That's yeah. going to have to come back. That was kind of like putting Jennifer in the car. That's kind of like, oh, well, now we can't, you know, play around with that, you yeah. know, in a different way if we do another movie. So it's always better to maybe leave those things open. But, yeah, I mean, not giving him the note doesn't give Bruce that understanding or closure. I mean, it's going to suck at first, but then he's not going to always kind of, like, have that what if or this was going to happen had this not, you know, he wasn't going to have Rachel anyway. No. In his life as a friend, and obviously he wants her to be alive, but not in that way. So that would have given him that closure, but at that moment, not the best time to be doing that. So I understand why Alfred didn't give it to him, but then burning it. Yes. Yeah, not the best No. Yeah. I mean. Especially because it's like her goodbye to him. You know, Alfred got a goodbye from Rachel, and they had this kind of understanding that, well, we're probably never going to see each other again. Bruce never really got a goodbye, like, in that way. Especially if you like, a death of a loved one. You want to cling to anything that you have personal about yeah. on. So, like, it's obviously, like, that has to be a setup to be paid off later. And it's just, like, I just said in the moment not giving him the note because you because dude's going through a tough time as it is. You don't want to make it any worse. Like, what if you had, like, the, te- the worst bedside manner? Like, oh, by the way, she didn't love you anyway. <laughs> you you raised her. You thought you were going to save her? No, she hated you. That would have been, like, Gotham, Alfred. He would have been like, Mr. White, <laughs> she fucking hated you. <laughs> you bloody bugger. She wasn't even going to be with you anyway. <laughs> Stop listening to your death manner. Listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I was thinking about that, the whole burning the lighter thing and how it related to what we see in Rises. And it it's kind of similar to in Rises where Gordon has the speech with the truth about Harvey, Harvey Dent. Dent. And... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. We'll get to that. Don't worry. Um, and for eight years, he just doesn't read the speech, even though, like, halfway through it, the city's the safest it's ever been. You could clearly, you know read the speech and there'd be very minimal repercussions you would think. Yeah. And yet he doesn't. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like it's not the, the thinking's not all there at times. <laughs> his brain is not connected to his mouth or any of his nerves or anything <laughs> at that point. It's just not working out for him. He's being a bit of a dum dum. Um So we get the kind of reveal of Harvey Two Face, the real Harvey Two Face. And how they did it is to kind of like, they're like, it's mostly CGI for that. And like, there's a little bit of some practical effects, like kind of like towards the top of his hair, but it's actually just like the motion tracker, like markers on his face that they kind of, so they, when he has articulate his face during his dialogue, they can, the, the computer animators can like, all right, erase that. And so they always have a tracking point of when we're going to do the effects. So I thought that was really cool. At first, I thought the eye was a little too big, and I'm like, wait. Yeah. Because I'm, like, I'm like, well, because because of eyelids, so the socket is much bigger because of that now. So I'm like, all right, that's fair. Now, I thought it was a little out of joint, but, like, most people's eyes are not actually really aligned like that. They're a little off a little bit. 
Um, and so we see Lao uh, after he'd been taken away from Joker escaping from the yeah Joker escaped from police headquarters with a bomb that he uh, surgically implanted into one of his goons that was arrested along with him. Um, okay. Gordon says this is whole part of his plan that he always wanted to be caught. Now, this became a trope in movies that kind of pissed me off because Loki did in the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Um, Javier Bardem did in Skyfall. It happens all the time in the damn CW shows. Yes. Uh, and hell, even uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch does that. Now, Benedict, at least in Star Trek, there was, there was a little bit of a a kind of twist on that, which I didn't have a problem with. But like, the Avengers, like, okay, but like, Skyfall really pissed me off because especially Skyfall took a lot of influence from especially this movie, and I'll get into that later. But like, when he got caught in like half a thing, I'm like, oh, fuck you, movie. I know <laughs> where you're going with this. He's going to escape. And the inexplicable, all the kind of things that had to happen in order for his character to escape unharmed and not being stopped by Bond. That's why I don't have that much love to that movie compared to other people when it comes to the Daniel Craig Bond movies. Anyway, so Lau is sitting on top of the giant pile of money with the Joker. And I love the moment where, like, Joker takes, like, a wad of money and just throws it at Lau's face. It's like, <laughs> like, like, oh, you want your money? Like, here's your money. And just slaps him with it. And he sets the money on fire altogether. All of it. And kills the Russian and takes his dogs. And I wonder if like, it was like a kind of like a one take thing between their conversation. They're like, all right, we can only do this once, guys. Um, so you better hit your marks right because we're setting this on fire. Okay, go. <sighs> I wonder if that was just pressured for the actors in any way. It took a dogged effort to get that scene right. You had a burning desire to make that joke, didn't you? Yep, I did. <laughs> At least you cash out with these jokes, okay? Oh, my God. Cash me outside. How about that? <laughs> anyway, Mr. Reese, Mr. Reese <laughs> goes on the Anthony Michael Hall show <laughs> and says, I know who Batman is. And By the way, we skipped over probably the best line Morgan Freeman has in this movie. Oh, yes. Where he, when Mike, when... Mr. East <laughs> wants $10 million a year for the rest of his life. Morgan Freeman goes, you think your boss is Batman and you want to blackmail him. Good luck. I'm just going to take these. I'm going to fold these up and I'm going to go. Like that, that was just like, well, I didn't think this one through that well. I thought this would go a lot smoother. Well, uh, I'll see you later, boss. And like, oh, what if you just quit after that? Like, well, like, I can't go back to work like that. This is embarrassing now. He's never going to look at me the oh, same. At Batman wasn't there when he said it. Yeah, he's just, <laughs> I guess I become the Riddler now. Yeah, like, and so Joker makes a proclamation. If anybody kills Mr. E, Mr. E's himself, be, um, better do that. Otherwise, he's going to blow up a hospital. And so chaos. I hope everybody's got that. Chaos is the theme of the movie. Chaos. Just like how fear was the theme of the first movie, chaos is the theme of this movie. Hope chaos right. and fairness. Fairness and uh, escalation. That's uh, a lot of escalators. Escalation. 
That's where the final fight should have taken place on an escalator. This movie. And he's been thrown down to fly an escalator. Always going up. And you, you'd like, have the Joker make it. You know those people who just walk up the escalator behind you? I mean, this is one of the good parts of life. <laughs> you don't have to move. But no. They have to. They have to get up in my personal space here. And you know Easy, how I got, freak. You know how I got me scarred? Oh, an escalator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. So... Joker goes visits uh, Dent as a female nurse, and in the Blu-ray, I think he, I can tell that he's actually wearing a bra to complete his costume in that scene. And I'm like, <laughs> like that's method for you right there. And so the Joker pushes Dent over the edge to bring him down to his level and just take revenge on those who've taken so much away from him. And there's always been theories because we never got a clear definition of where this Joker is and who he is. He does mention amongst his conversations, like if a gangbanger is killed. Or a truck full of soldiers blow up, nobody panics. But if I tell everybody that one little mayor is going to die, everybody loses their minds. And a lot of people speculate that he was a former soldier, came back with some PTSD and kind of angry at the establishment. And that's what caused him to make these decisions. Do you think there's any? Do you think there's actually any real validity to that? I mean, like that's something I kind of lean towards, but due to his technical skill with weapons and strategy going throughout the movie, that's the only thing that kind of warrants that kind of question. But then again. He could be anybody with a certain skill set. Email sound. <laughs> that's Christopher Nolan telling you that Shut that's up. incorrect. Yes. <laughs> I like not knowing better. But, I mean, if I if I was going to, you know, uh, guess, I would say that he's probably uh, a surfer. <laughs> with uh, okay, I just really wanted to be Patrick Swayze. <laughs> Johnny, let me do it one more time. He 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 got the big wave away from Johnny Utah, and he became a uh, master uh, bad guy, which already was. Oh, the other master bad guy. There we go, Justin. I like the fact that he has no set backstory, and that's why I really enjoyed before everyone started. To quote the movie, blowing it out of proportion. That's a blow this thing out of proportion. proportion. Um, that's why I think I really enjoyed the scenes where he tells um, Gamble and Rachel about how he got his scars and gives them two completely different explanations to really confuse not so much the the people he's talking to in the scene, but the audience. It establishes that this, whoever we're dealing with here, is so lost that any concept of his identity, he either wants no part of, or he wants whomever he's talking to at that point to believe whatever he wants himself to believe. Right. Um, I think like you... I, Tim, I tend to go with the theory that says he was some sort of ex-military person because it fits in with when it was released, 2008. Yeah, sort of that war weariness with the whole Afghanistan and Iraq uh, saga was really big, not just in America but in England Mm. as well, where Nolan is from. So it kind of fits in. With his character and with everything at the time. But I think that it's never explicitly stated. And I think it 
it works well for his character. Yeah. And um and I love the moment where like he kind of gets then to become the kind of an evil person that he is. He gives him a gun and says like well, uh, chaos is fair and everything, but um there's something about that scene that when he gives him that uh the gun and everything like that and he says like he puts he lets Dent put the gun to his head. Joker's still holding on to the hammer. Even if he pulls the trigger, he's not going to let go. There's no real choice in that. He has no real choice that matter. He just got lucky that the the odds were in his favor when he flipped the coin because now the coin is scarred because of because of the explosion that killed Rachel scarred one half of his his father's uh, coin. And so, and when I was saying about the comedic moments that didn't work, one of the favorite moments is like two moments here is like. When it cuts to Joker leaving Dent's room, and he's got the hand sanitizer, and he's just wiping his hands down, <laughs> and then blows up the rest of the, the hospital wing, and then comes out of the building as it's starting to go up, and only part of the explosions go off, and he's standing there like, huh, that didn't go as planned. Where's everything else? It's the dead here. Kaboom! The rest of the, the, the building goes up like, whoo! <laughs> there we go. Woo! Has a very, uh... Ocean's Eleven vibe for me. Yeah, it's with very the, Dasher over there. Put batteries in here. Uh oh. You know. Yeah, like we were saying, we're not concentrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Joker killed the amazing yet. <laughs> Where fuck you been? <laughs> it comes out of the, the the wreckage of Gotham Central. I would say it's Lau is the amazing yet. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's one of the few times in the movie where he's actually. Like the classic adaptations of the Joker, where it's just like, this is pretty funny. Yeah. Like, I'm blowing up a hospital, but it's not blowing up. That's funny. It's it's hysterical. <laughs> Jimmy Canale well, takes out part of the wall. <laughs> Before he takes out uh, public office. Oh! <laughs> Edit that out. Oh, he doesn't listen to the show. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it might luck somehow he does. <laughs> anyway. In a very strongly worded <laughs> Your taxes in Brookhaven are about to go up. Uh, So at the same time, uh, Bruce Wayne in his Lamborghini save um, Mr. Reeves from being attacked from a Gotham citizen. Um, So, and I love the moment where, like, he's just saying, like, you think I should uh, go to the hospital? You don't watch the news very often. (laughs) Like, you weren't protecting the van? Why? Who's in it? And he has that moment where he nods with Mr. Reeves. He's like, you know what? I just saved your ass. Keep your mouth shut. See, I I thought when I first watched this movie, that was like going to be one of the things that tipped off Gordon to discovering that Bruce and Batman were the same person. Right. And I was actually really disappointed that there wasn't some sort of not either not to that later in the movie or somewhere in Rises. Yeah, and so after that, Dent is going on a killing spree, dealing with all the people who were involved with the uh, kidnapping of him and Rachel. And I, I love it. It's kind of a screwed up moment where one of the cops is in a bar. Like, because like, at the same time, Joker issues a threat to the city and everybody's trying to escape. So he's like the one person in the bar. Dent comes in, drinks his drink, and like half of it goes in his mouth, half goes out of it because his lip is kind of screwed up and leaked at the side of his face that's that's hard liquor on open wounds well at, at least it it um 
sanitizes it. I mean, more than what it was, because he was denying skin grafts, and he looks like he kind of needs it. He needs, like, some, I just want to, like, pour peroxide in his face. Like, let's cover his eye. Like, all right, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt a lot, but squeeze and just make it. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be better. I'll have Batman kiss you boo-boo if it make you feel better after that. We got a Batman uh, uh, band-aid. Ba- ba- band-aid. Ba- a Batman band-aid. Get a um, Batman skin graft. <laughs> <laughs> a bat bra- and like, yes, I have a bat-breaded skin graft. <laughs> from uh, uh like very adam west like and so we finally morgan freeman's watching the news of everybody trying to escape um gotham gordon has all, all the prisoners leave from the prison saying hey, they they were involved in this somehow we need to get them out of here at the same time somebody says somebody broke into r&d lucius fox goes down and sees all the money that they were talking about earlier about the money going into R&D, the sonar system has been applied to all the cell phones going on in Gotham City. And here's where kind of a moral quandary happens because it seems like since this is post-9-11 is still like coming off the end of the Bush administration at this point. It seems like Batman's pro-Patriot Act at this point. Yeah. That, People that's... made that uh, kind of parallels to this. Uh, it's It's not like he's pro-patriot act all the time no because he does blow up the entire system at the end of the uh, yes the day but um i would say it's probably the closest thing you could get to like a really good excuse for the patriot act we're like we have a real situation going on here we need to find out where this guy is and it's not just like a random witch hunt. It's like, we know there's one guy fucking sh- up shit everywhere in the city, and we have to find him. Yeah. And Which is a lot different than how the Patriot Act is actually applied in. Yeah, I mean, like, it definitely says, like, the end do justify the means, but, like, and a lot of people, like, kind of criticism, like, of saying people pro or for against the Patriot Act. Like, people for, like, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to worry about. Which was my thinking for a while, but then I'm just like, yeah. then you realize it, I'm like, no, I don't want like. Then you read the subtext, and you're like, oh well, no. I feel that's slightly uncomfortable. Really. I think it was my time last week of just realizing, like, well, I think it was just like maybe our classes with Ruddy that you and I just oh had, yes, that kind of like opened my eyes to it, and that's when I <laughs> that's when I be, went from a registered Republican and I went into a registered Democrat. So. Anyway, we'll get off that political topic before we go any further, before we lose all of our listeners for somehow. Bigly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, it's nightfall at this point. Two ferries are leaving from the Gotham Harbor. And I realize that, like, it's a kind of a joke my sister always says, like, there's always once a year, somebody's, the Staten Island, the New Jersey ferries, somebody's always crashing it. And it is like a... A yearly event that somebody crashes a ferry in New York City, like, and then we have a situation here going on in the Dark Knight, and then like, and I showed her the trailer for Spider-Man: Homecoming. Like, look, ferry in New York screwed up again. I guess you could say it was a very bad night for Gotham. And you, I thought my jokes were bad. Oh man, that was perfect. Ah, oh. well done, well done. Chris, you've been rather quiet for the past couple of minutes. <laughs> I thought so. And so, 
Now I know that Nolan was a, he studied literature when he was uh, when he was in school, but they definitely seems like he took a philosophy class or two because in Batman Begins and here there were two philosophy situations that were brought up. In the Batman Begins, we I didn't bring it up in the review is that the train situation where a train is barreling down a track and you can only go one two ways. One track has one person on it. The second track has five people on it. And you have to choose which person, which track is going to go down. Somebody's going to die regardless. You just have to make the moral question, like, is one life worth sacrificing in order to save many? Is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? And then you have what we have here is what we find out with the two fairies, one filled with uh, uh, criminals, the other filled with Gotham uh, civilians. Each one have a bomb on that on it. And Joker tells him, like, everybody has a debt. Each fairy has the detonator for the other boat. So either don't do anything and see if you trust the other fairy to hold up their end or blow up the other boat and save yourself. And it's based off what they call the prisoner experiment in philosophy where two people are arrested for the same crime and are kept in separate rooms and both have two separate interrogations. Now there's three outcomes that can happen. Both of you guys don't say anything, and you guys get a few years of life or a few years of a sentence. Or one person gives you up, and you get walk away scot free, and the other person does ten years. Or you both uh, concede to something, and you have a, a little bit of a, a sentence going on. And so it's all built upon the trust that you have with your fellow man. What do you think of the kind of the philosophical question that comes out of this scene? Hmm. I always felt like this was the most difficult part of the movie for me to process from the standpoint of Gotham's not the best city. No. <laughs> and you've got a bunch of um, people, civilians, on one boat who have seen their city just go to shit over the past 20 years. And who are probably fed up with the shit. And you have another boat filled with the people that they hate. I'm not sure if I quite ever really bought into the fact that neither of them would want to blow up the other one. Mm. Um, I think it's especially difficult after you've spent the past two movies trying to establish how bad of a town Gotham really is. And then kind of going in a reversal than that, saying, oh, but everyone who lives there is still upsetting citizens. I guess it's supposed to like be a beacon of hope or something to strive to be. I agree with that. That's what the the message is. I'm just not sure if everything in the movie's leading up to that corresponds with that message. Right. See, I thought the way they did this, they it would have been much better if the boats had to go 50 miles an hour or they would explode. <laughs> the bomb on a bus. <laughs> the bomb on a ferry. It would have been, yeah, it would have been... Go 50 knots. would have been speed too. It's cruise control. But, um... This yeah, this feels like this was plopped in from another movie almost. Like kind of like Justin was saying. If it doesn't feel tonally like this is what we've been 
building up to. It feels like a Sam Raimi Spider-Man moment mm. just pasted into this movie almost. Um, but I know why you need it there. But it, I, I always forget that it even is in this movie until it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this part, the fairy part with Zeus, the former pro wrestler. <laughs> no holds barred with, like, was on during this situation, that's for sure. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh my God. Let's go. Let's just leave him here alone. <laughs> uh, I'll sit here by myself. I'll talk to myself. But I have, to, I have to kind of disagree with you guys with here because I feel like because you had that moment where people turn on each other in Bevan Begins due to the fear toxin because there was under influence and out of fear of each other. That's why the narrows tore itself apart to an extent. And now with this, it does ask the question, can you, can a person be good? Can a person trust each other? And could you be willing to put your trust in your fellow man? And it's kind of like what you think. It's the whole movie's been building to this point where you needed to see that Gotham is what Batman's doing and what Dent is doing, what Gordon is doing is worth fighting for. It is something to strive for because the city still would protect them. It still want to be that like Batman says to Joker later on after he defeats all the Joker goons using his sonar in the incomplete building across the bay that they're still good in people. Men are still good. You see, you bring up you bring up that point and I think that would work except we get a couple of um very, very minor characters during those sequences on the boat who are just complete rando citizens, rando prisoners, and we don't really know if why they're doing it is because of what Batman and Dent have been doing over this movie, mm-hmm. or if they're just outliers in a crappy town. Right. Because we we know that what Batman is doing is, quote, good for the city, but we also know from the first movie that there are are a lot of corrupt politicians and lawyers and a whole bunch of other mm, less than savory um, figures in the city. It's it's a corrupt town, and I don't think you can just build all of that up for two movies and then all of a sudden just have someone unrelated to who's like never had any personal contact with Batman or with Dent or with Gordon just say, oh yeah, we trust Batman completely. He's going to save us all. Right. Implicitly, of course. They never actually... Better idea, poor execution? Yeah, I think if... (sighs) If the boy that King Joffrey ended up being... On the ferry from the first movie, yeah, then then yes, it could work. Or like, have someone who the audience like at least knows a little bit. Like they just give you three random actors for that scene, and there's really no connection to it. 
And I think the point of that is, I guess, is because like, guess it could be anybody. It could be us. It's kind of like putting up a mirror to the audience saying, how would you react in this situation? Like if Rachel was still alive and she was on the boat or something like that and she's pleading for with the everybody else on the boat saying, I've put these people away, but I still think they are still human beings and they still need our trust. So that thing guy would work. That, yeah. that would work. Or it would have been help. It would have been maybe a good opportunity to set up John Blake here, or if you even had him in play at this point, mm. you can have him on on that boat doing that. I think you just wrote a better character there, saying like, "Hey, I was on that. I was on that boat when." Mm. Mm. In, instead of the orphanage backstory, yeah. you could still have that. But you can also but have him have be the on Robin the boat. Tie in later on. Hey, you should call yourself Robin. Yeah, fucking <laughs> tacked on bullshit. Oh, I can't wait till we get to that. And so, Batman takes uses his sonar to defeat all the Joker goons, fights the Joker. But okay, this character has fought Rachel Ghoul in this in this series. Three Wattweilers and a guy with a pipe, and he's no match for it. Uh, in fairness. His um, his vision sensor. Lift up the visor. Bah. There we go. And then, like I'm watching it, like just lift it up. Like, all right, it's obviously not working right Seriously? now. Seriously, this the guy that beat the Joker? Yeah, like, like this really is like a, like a question of logic here. It's like I know I'm just being nitpicky at this point, and people are gonna be like, like stop shitting on the movie. Like, I love this movie. I'm not Jonathan I'm not... nitpicky. <laughs> but. Uh, it's it's I understand where you're coming from, but the the shot where it's it's from his point of from Batman's point of view as the the visor is flickering on and off. It's never really like completely off, but it's never really completely on. So I, I'm guessing he's just like holding on to hope yeah. that it'll just come back on, you know, as soon as possible. Right, and he's a little disoriented at that and, point. And it's, there's no light in the room without it, so right. he can't see anyway. Oh, here they doctors is your ally. I was born in it. <laughs> and so Joker has a speech like, you think I was fighting for Gotham's soul and I ended up with just a fist fight with you? No, I brought Harvey down to my level. And so this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. We're destined to do this forever. <laughs> Sadly, we, that doesn't get to happen. And so then Batman finds out that Dent has kidnapped Gordon's family. They've gone back to where Rachel was blown up. And he plans to kill those responsible for what happened here and take away what's most important to Gordon, which is his family. And and he says, like, Batman says, point the gun at those who are responsible, not the family. He says, okay. Flips his coin, shoots Batman. Puts the gun to himself. My turn. And he flips it. Luckily, right side up. What was the wrong side up? Was he going to shoot himself? And then Gordon just gets away. He's like, all right, I'll hold on to that. Then I'm going to. Well, that was easy. Yeah, just like, like when he just really defeat himself, Gordon's just sitting there on the gravel like. Hmm. Oof. Wow, that situation involved himself. I knew he was crazy. I didn't know if he was crazy <laughs> enough to shoot himself. But Batman, <laughs> Batman, are you okay? You can come Ow. out now. I'm fine. Okay, wow. What a scary face. <laughs> Harvey face is scary face. All right, well, uh, let's go get falafel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't like falafel. And so Batman spears 
uh, Dent off the platform and, and killing him. Yes, he kills Dent. Really made a dent in the ground. Ho, ho! Oh, ho, oh, oh, oh. har, har, har. I mean, har, har, har. Uh, uh, uh. And so, and then we find out that there's so many people that Dent is killed and everything. And at this point, Batman says, blame it on me. You chase me and I'll be the person that Gotham needs. And so let's sum up the theme in the movie and everything. He's not what we need right now, but it's somebody we deserve, etc., etc. And so they'll hunt him and everything. And my point, I'm like, at this point, I'm like, why not just blame the deaths on the Joker? He's killed enough people in the city. Why not blame it on him, not on Batman? Hmm. But then we wouldn't have a third movie. But we didn't know we were going to get a third movie because he always said, well, I always want to concentrate on one movie at a time, even though we did, we're going to show Bat- Alfred burning the letter at this point in this big climax and all this big montage is happening. So you end then this series of movies with little kids in the movie, like when the credits are rolling. So Batman's a bad guy now? So that's how you would you would leave it then? I mean, like, it does confuse people who don't, you know, aren't as perceptive the first time around watching this movie I mean, you know obviously he's he's not holding the hand of the audience he's trying to elevate what a comic book movie can be so. sure yeah but it does have that effect of i remember a little kid saying so batman's a bad guy now at yeah. the end of the movie it's like oh no like but and you have to take the time to explain but it would be a shame if it ended like that and you and you don't get the third movie but yeah you could have easily done you know what you just suggested right but, but 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 that's that's the thing about Batman though he can make the choice, <laughs> and so the movie ends with the, the declaration that he is the Dark Knight. Boom. <sighs> now, a few things I want to cover before we do our favorite scene, least favorite scene, and then we do our wrap up. Um, Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard's oh, score, great score. I mean, just in like the opening notes of the Why So Serious Joker theme, and just like how it just builds and builds, and it's just the uncomfortable tension that's built throughout but it's not my favorite track of the, the score it's the track harvey dent which is pretty much like james newton howard like and he builds a nice emotional suite to it and like i'm listening to it the first time when i got the soundtrack and i'm like this could be like this sounds like howard short this could be lord of the rings at this point like i want to take this piece and put it into lord of the rings footage and see if anybody questions if that's not right or not what do you like do you think the score is better than the batman begins one Hmm. It's difficult to say because the musical themes that um, Zimmer didn't do the first. He he did. He started with um, the Dark Knight, right? No, him and James Newton Howard did the first two. Oh, okay, Zimmer was the Zimmer did the second one. Okay, but the the point is the the themes from. Uh, Batman Begins sort of continue not sort of, they do continue in this movie Batman's theme stays pretty much the same right Um, and I think my only criticism of the score is that all the tracks sound a little bit too repetitive Mm -hmm. um, with the exception of the uh, of why so serious and it's been quite a long time since I've listened to the soundtrack so I, I don't remember um, the Harvey Dent theme mm. off the top of my head but I 
I paid attention to the score while I was watching it today, and I really like how it fits in with the the film itself. Like nothing really seems out of place. The themes are perfectly timed up, right? With the characters, um, and if you can, if you can forgive its repetitiveness, it, it's really one of the better scores that we have for a superhero movie. Right. I, I like it. Um, I like Batman Begins as well. But I think The Dark Knight Rises wipes the floor with mm. both of them. Yes. I love the music from that movie. Because normally, it really takes a lot for a score to stand out to me. Because if it's doing its job, then it's not getting in getting in the way and jumping out to me unless it's unless it's one of those cases where you leave the theater humming the the theme like a back to the future or something like that um so these they they do their job and i kind of i leave with more of the vibe of the i i leave with that more than anything else, but The Dark Knight Rises, I I think I'll have a lot to say about the music in, in that film more so than than the... But but no, I think they're great. And I think, you know, Hans Zimmer and Olivia Newton-John or whoever, whoever that guy was, I think they... James Newton Howard? Whatever. <laughs> oh, I, I, want, I want that score. Do you, Howard? I mean, no. It's just like all of a sudden you start singing Xanadu play and they're just like, like, why? Wait, this does not make any sense. Like, I don't understand. Like, why you want to listen to this? But, but okay. Um, yeah, no, like, I, I love the score. I prefer the Batman Begins score over this, but the Harvey Dent theme, like the track itself, I think it's perfect. Um, one of the things were, okay, because this movie was so popular and it became such a pop culture icon and so much in the moment, we did see such residual effects of it for years to come. Mm. Like I said, Skyfall took a lot from this. Um, a lot of mo- like scores became very Hans Zimmer esque after this, and then, and Arrow first season, first oh, two seasons, you know, yeah. very much like this, including the score. Including the score, do you think it's a detriment to media that came out afterwards? Do you think it was kind of like you couldn't get away from it until like the Avengers came out? No, I, I don't think it's a detriment, a detriment to this movie or a, de- a detriment and, uh, to everything else. And like mm. Winter Soldier is very much like this, Captain America Winter Soldier, like especially like the Winter Soldier score has like a one note theme that kind of builds intention. And sure, like it has it's his own movie, and it's definitely a Marvel movie, but Winter Soldier I don't think would have been as popular or as Howard's construction if it wasn't for this. From a musical standpoint, I do think it's been a detriment because I know we had this a similar conversation when we looked at was it Memento or was it um Insomnia. Insomnia. One of those two where we talked about the scores and Nolan's films and then we talked about we got a little bit off topic and we started talking about scores in other movies. Right. And how yeah, you know, if you look, if you really look at um, a lot of the Marvel stuff, the music just isn't as memorable. I don't want to say it's bad because, to be honest, it hasn't stood out to me while I'm watching the film. So I've never actually gone 
to listen to its soundtrack. Listen to the first Avengers soundtrack. If there's one of them you're going to listen to, listen to Alan Silvestri's score because it's it's wonderful. So I, I would say there, it has been a detriment to films that come after this. But when you look at the score for Dark Knight, it's memorable. Yeah. It, it's, it doesn't go in with... Um, with the the Marvel um, category, like I remember when Dark Knight Rises came out, as soon as it it um, came out on Spotify, I was all over it. Mm-hmm. When uh, when I was going through my big Nolan movie phase a couple of summers ago, like I wanted to listen to the Batman Begins soundtrack and the Rises the uh, Dark Knight soundtrack. Mm. There's a quality to the the scores in these three movies that I think is underrated, and I think if it's the one, ironically, the one thing that is underrated in this movie is the one that hasn't been picked up on by Marvel or used in a lot of its movies is the effective use of a score yeah um which i agree with now this and inception are the two biggest movies nolan's ever made i guess there's gonna be a question we can probably bring up when we do inception again but if you want but us do now do you think nolan will ever achieve this kind of status again will he ever make a movie this good again that's difficult to say because you had a, a couple of things to kind of create the perfect storm with The Dark Knight. One, you had everything surrounding Heath Ledger. Yeah. From the virtuoso performance tied in with, unfortunately, his death leading up to the release of the film. Plus the fact that it's Batman Mm -hmm. in a summer where there really weren't that many other blockbuster movies that came out. I mean, Indiana Jones came out in Memorial Day weekend. Um, Iron Man came out. I don't remember what timeless summer that came out, but I want to say like August, maybe a month or so after this. Perhaps. I, I, don't, remember, I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, it really was I, kind of like a week summer for blockbuster movies and this was like this was it that summer this was what everyone had been looking forward to this is before you know that i think we're kind of numb to it now with like everything that marvel and dc is putting out where like the f- five billion different things come out every year that's just like oh there's a new superhero movie coming out right but back in 2008 unless you were really pumped up for Iron Man, this was really it. Yeah. And... and Hellboy. <laughs> exactly, or Hellboy. <laughs> Hellboy 2. Um, so I think that sort of fed into it. And I think the cast also plays into it as well because you have, um, again, a great cast with Christian Bale who everyone 
knows. You have Michael Caine, who everyone knows. Morgan Freeman, everyone is in love with. And then you have really good performances from Aaron Eckhart, from Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, it's it's a really well done. I heard Aaron, Aaron Holliday when he said that. I was like, that's why I looked at you. I'm like, wait, Aaron Holliday was in this movie. Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I think you... I'm like, I'm like duh, wait a second, that doesn't right. <laughs> <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Guys, Aaron's cool. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah, the perfect storm for this movie, and I think. Short of him getting, like, you know, another, you know, Academy Award-winning performance out of another actor in one of his other movies, it'll be very difficult to top what he did with Dark Knight, with The Dark Knight. I mean, I can't sit here and pretend that I know that the stars are ever going to align the same way that they did for this movie again. That's very hard to, you know, I'm sure he's going to do great things. I mean, I, you guys are way more familiar with Nolan than I am. My, you know, my experience is basically these movies. Mm-hmm. So and for Inception. and Inception, but I mean, obviously in, I'm, you know, Inception is not a, a daily interest for me as, as Batman is. So, you know, you're ne- there's never going to be anything that's going to reach me the way that these movies reach me that Nolan makes, but that's not to say that the next film he makes isn't going to be a massive success and he's going to win all the awards and everything like that. But, um, for a guy like me, this movie is it, you know, this is, this trilogy is it rather. So whether or not he makes anything that, that surpasses this for a certain you know, section of, of, of people who maybe aren't going to see those other movies, these may be always what he has up there. So I think, I think that's, that's pretty, you know, that's nothing to shake a stick at. No. I mean, I feel like that's kind of like, kind of led into some of the disappointment with Rises because he had this, Dark Knight, and then he followed up with Inception, which is arguably as good, if not better than this movie you know, from a creative standpoint. And then you have, and then he has to go back and he has to finish a trilogy. And then he has two groundbreaking movies back to back before this. So it was kind of a losing battle when it came to Rises. Like, he was not going to be able to please everyone. The only people he pleased by were the people who were, A, funding the movie in his own personal sense of telling a good story. So I would hope, like, I mean, like, Dunkirk, like, Interstellar looks like was a big movie, like, in scope. Dunkirk looks to be the same thing. I just hope. The one day that he has to go back to a small movie, so he doesn't have such a insurmountable odds that he has to top or anything like that. He can just kind of go back like, all right, I don't need to change the world. I can just tell this size story. One of the things I'll never forget about the run-up to the release of The Dark Knight was months before this movie was uh, going to be released, people were talking about Heath Ledger's performance in it, saying that it could it could be one of the best performances of of that theatrical year. Yeah, and 
it turned out to be the the Oscars gave the best support uh, Academy Award posthumously. It, it did, and we we kind of got that feeling when Inception was about to be released that this is going to be one of the best movies of the year. Um, for a couple of reasons, partly because Leonardo DiCaprio started it, partly because it was Christopher Nolan. Um, and then when both Rises and when uh, Interstellar came out, there wasn't that that anticipation from like a critical sense uh, of this movie. Like the critics weren't lining up for it like right. the way they were for Inception or for The Dark Knight Rises. I think that sort of level of anticipation won't be matched the way The Dark Knight and the way Inception um, reached. Yeah, and I kind of it definitely seems like Dunkirk is not getting that kind of preliminary yeah. anticipation. When we get closer, I think it's starting next month. Like then, probably, definitely, when critics screenings start to happen, it was like it was interesting. I, I finally started to see TV spots for it during the NBA Finals. Yeah, but um, other than that, it's had a relatively quiet buildup, and I'm not sure if that's going to be. Good or bad? I think it's good because I'll go in expecting less and hopefully I'll be a little bit surprised and it'll be um, classic Christopher Nolan. Mm. Um, but it's kind of, um, right now at least, it's not ex- exciting as the build-up for, um, for the last two Batman or the build-up for... Um, Inception was right. All right, and favorite scene, least favorite scene. I would say my favorite scene out of a lot to choose from in this film. Yeah, I know it's a little difficult there. I would say one of the first scenes with um Bruce and Alfred when they're talking about Batman's limits and. Bruce t- tells Alfred, Batman has no limits. But he does. At, which is Alfred's reply. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what the theme of this movie is really about. I can see all the stuff with Dent and how people would um, say that's what the theme of the movie is about. It's about, you know, at what point does the hero become the villain Mm. I think the if you're judging this just as Batman's story I think the story of this movie is when does Batman stop becoming the hero or what does it take for him to stop becoming the hero and he's ready to do it when he thinks he has a realistic shot with Rachel when he thinks that Harvey can be that um that um that next beacon mm. and then once he has to step up back into the spotlight that's when he um says you know what 
the city still needs me, so I'm all in. And least favorite? Oh, definitely the falling out the window. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> Chris? <laughs> um, my favorite is the uh, the Lao rescue, mm-hmm. as I will call it, or the retrieval of Lao in Hong Kong. I just that whole from when they get there and Fox is meeting with Lao until they fly away with him. I love that whole sequence, um, and it's kind of removed from the whole Joker stuff and the whole you know it's kind of gets to be its own thing. Batman in action, you get Lucius. Anytime you get Lucius Fox in action with him, it's like an extra little added bonus. So. That's definitely my favorite part of the movie. My least favorite, uh, I, you know, it's weird because I always start to mentally check out of the movie when, like, the Joker's blowing up the hospital. That's kind of when I'm like, all right. Uh, and I don't know why it's nothing, like, specifically that is happening that I don't like. It's just kind of when I've reached my point of starting to kind of look at my watch almost and it always happens every time I watch the movie that's always the part at where like alright I'm gonna check my phone now so it's not because of anything that's happening it's just that's always the part where I kind of check out for a little bit when he's blowing up the hospital which I can agree I mean like the movie does go on long kind of like how this podcast, podcast. Is going on, <laughs> going on long. don't worry we'll wrap it up soon um, my least favorite scene is yeah when um the falling out the window and they both should be dead. That's it's, ridiculous. It's it's like Oliver coming back to life for no reason at the middle of season three in Arrow. It makes no sense. Although, you know, I am a little bit disappointed that we didn't get Earth 2 Rachel in The Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> except she's a bad Rachel. You know, she's she's not the DA. She's, you know, maybe she's... Uh, the, the head of a crime syndicate on Earth 2 or something like that. You know what happened? She didn't come back to life. That That's that's what's yeah, missing. We didn't have a Lazarus pit to bring her back or anything. You or, don't even need that. You, you just need... No explanation. Just brought it back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my favorite scene is definitely the Batman-Joker interrogation scene. The whole build-up and like, the kind of admiration the Joker has towards him and how it just escalates into just unbearable tension between the two of them and like how... I love the moment when it cuts back to everybody on the observation room. It's kind of getting very restless. It's like, this is really, really uncomfortable. we got to stop this because this is going to get out of hand super quick. Mm-hmm. And you, you as an audience member, just like, just stop. Just please don't. You're not going to win this battle. It's a battle of wills right here. And I'm sorry, Batman Joker's going to win. He's willing to die to do this. And, and I love the fact that Joker wants him, Batman to break his one rule. And... I know I'm going back to defending BVS here, but like a lot of people had problems with Batman killing people. I'm like, you one of the biggest cruxes of this movie was Batman not killing. How do you make your Batman, do you introduce him, stand out with him? You give him as part of his character arc is that he has gone down that road and he comes back from that darkness, and that's what the whole point of Batman, that Ben Affleck's character arc in that movie was. But some people were just like, Whoa. so. I say this. I say fuck you. <laughs> that's all. That's what all of them did at yeah. the same. Yeah, they became ghost stalkers. <laughs> I just threw their arms up in the air and just started becoming ghouls in the it theater. It was a madhouse. Like uh, in their blogs and podcasts and such. Anyway, final thoughts. For a while, this was. Uh, it's definitely my favorite movie. From, um, one of my favorite. 
I, let me reword that. One of my favorite theatrical experiences was seeing this movie. Um, the two times I saw it in the theater, I saw it the opening weekend, and I saw it. Um, I think on my birthday, a couple uh, a week later. So, um, each time I saw it, I was blown away by it. Um, kind of like the hospital. Yeah, or or Rachel, she was blown away too. Um, I, uh, it's difficult to say where or how you even rank these three movies because they are very different films, all three of them. Um, I think, yeah, if you're looking for just, um, an absolute terrific performance from a villain, then... This is, without a doubt, my favorite of the three movies because I think Heath Ledger's uh, villain is definitely the the mo- the most complete out of the three villains, uh, Bane, Joker, and Raz Al Ghul. Um, he's the Raz one- Al Ghul. Raz Al Ghul. Oh, but let's wait two scenes. It'll be Raz Al Ghul again. Yeah. Um, pronunciation consistency. Got oh my god. Um, so I think it's difficult to say. You know, pick your favorite Batman movie mm. out of these three because, again, like I said last week, any day you ask me, I could give you a completely different answer, mm. and all with different reasons, as you said. I like it. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I forget how cool a lot of the stuff in this is. Um, it's not my favorite of the trilogy. It's, you know, I like Batman. Batman Begins, obviously, my favorite. And I love The Dark Knight Rises. I just, I don't, I really don't care what anyone has to say about it. I, I love that movie. This movie just doesn't do it the same way that those two do for me. Like, I still, I like it. It's just not, it's, it's in third place for me. Um, for reasons that I can't really articulate, it's just, I know that that's how it is. I don't have any problems with it. It just happens to be my least favorite of three movies that I really like. So, um, not, not my definitive Batman movie, I'll say. And for a lot of people it is, and for a lot of people that's great. Um, but not my definitive Batman movie. I feel like if the solo Ben Affleck movie really hits the way I want it to hit, I feel like that has the opportunity to kind of dethrone the Dark Knight as, like, the one that everyone looks to. Mm. Um, So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see if people are willing to accept that or if they will still cling on to no well dark knight no heath ledger you know so uh interested to see how 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 the conversation changes as we get more cinematic solo batman movies yeah especially if they've cling on to them that would be even <laughs> better <laughs> i mean uh yeah i mean there was a time where i i had like a kind of a negative feeling towards this movie because it was just like everybody and their mother was talking about it and i just yeah. want to get away from it 
And because since I have so much admiration to Batman Begins, I'm like, there's a better Batman movie out there and everything. But now Dust has settled. So many other things have come out since that I still love and respect this movie. I still enjoy Batman Begins more. I had a lot of fun watching this, researching it, and obviously discussing it with you guys. So if you haven't seen it, well, I've even made it this far and you haven't seen it yet. I mean, uh, major spoilers. Duh. Uh, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed our little discussion. Now, if you want to follow us on social media, Justin, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at. <laughs> you okay there? <laughs> yeah, it's your crock shit. <laughs> you can't find me. Oh, bullshit. At coughed at cough. You can find me at Justin Cirillo, J U S T I N C I R I L L O, if you need help with the spelling. B I N G E L. Thank you. Um. Lately, well, you just missed my week-long um, CW superhero tweet-a-thon. So, you haven't watched uh, Supergirl yet, though? I have not. Yeah, I watched maybe about seven episodes of the first season. It gets better. It gets better, like, in episode eight. I think that's the funny thing. It's when a big reveal happens, too. Yeah, I have to go back and, and watch, apparently not just season one, but season two. Season two is great. Really? I love it. It's my second favorite show. Watch it. Now. Go home and watch it. Okay, bye guys. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'm either tweeting about that or uh, or sports. So, one of the two. Well, you can find me on the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network. I host a podcast called Music of the Mat. It is about the music of professional wrestling. And you can follow us on Twitter at Music of the Mat, and of course, find us on iTunes, you know, wherever you find your, your podcasts. Just search for Voices of Wrestling, and we'll come up, as will many other delightful pro wrestling podcasts. So if that's your forte, then definitely check us out. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, don't try to track me down personally. I really, I have a Twitter, but I, I don't even, you don't need to follow me. I, 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 I tweet about, like, old commercials from the 90s and like random songs that i'm listening to that day i don't even it's not interesting don't even you don't have to put my twitter in the in the episode notes either it's i don't want these people finding me i i, I should just delete it i'm deleting my twitter i just i've decided right now i'm deleting it i i talked to you on twitter more than i did <laughs> i'm just kidding I'm just i just i just wanted this to spiral down into us <laughs> I watched. I, I like this is too long. I want a friendship done. <laughs> like, he just beat us with the microphones. It's like that's how. Uh, that's how it went from like, hey, we're having a good time, at the of the show, and then like friendships gone. Like, and then I write a strongly worded email saying your movie killed two friendships of mine. Just saying. Um, if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two. My Instagram at tbrooney1012. My YouTube and Facebook page under the same banner of Through the Lens Productions. On YouTube, my recent short film Cat Call is up, part of the 15 second horror film challenge. And get uh, if you like that, you can subscribe to that and get um, get ready because I have another film coming up this way for Film Rights uh, Monday challenge. And if you like this show, give us a five star review and a written review into iTunes if you really like it, guys. Thank you so much for taking part of this. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Hope everybody's enjoyed this review of The Dark Knight um, from the Anything Goes podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Anything went.
Good night, Justin. Good night, Justin. <laughs> we finally remembered. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>